Greetings, ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1178 to 1191. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1178. Story number one. Powder. Written by I are good at writing. This is your last chance, Mayfly. Disband your army and submit to Albert Rule before being eradicated from the history books. Gonking Landuan spat at the feet of the human's mare and smiled. Doge Mazenti shifted in his saddle and scanned the elven army behind the Gonk King's escort. Thousands of soldiers stood shoulder to shoulder in perfect formation, sunlight dancing on their conical silver helmets. Well, uh, you might not agree to trade and peaceful coexistence. Neither I nor the Republic hold ill will to the elven people. But as Pinsons value our freedom, what you propose is slavery, and human backs will never break to the whip. The God King grimaced. Your commitment is admirable, but pointless. Look at your situation. You face the most disciplined army in the known world. They are led by me. The God King made a flourishing gesture to himself. The greatest general to ever live. I won more victories than you've seen sunrises. He swung his head back and laughed. Mazenti glanced back towards his own army, each man watching their leaders meeting with the Elf King. See these men? They stand here because the alternative, your alternative, is worse than death on the battlefield. I still stand by my offer of... Landwin drew his sword and pointed at Mazenti, followed by his personal guard. The human escort cocked their muskets and pointed them at the God King and his elves. I am God! Landwin's sword admitted a radiant golden light, same color as his armor. And the god does not equate himself to short-lived mortals. You say mayflies prefer death over slavery. My army will put that claim to the test. Landwin stared down each man in the human escort and galloped back to his troops. Mazenti cursed and returned to the Pianzan army with his own guard in tow. I will not waste your time with a long-winded speech, the God King called out to his men. These mayflies are rabble, a stain on the face of the world. They can't even afford to put a single man in armor, unless they think that cloth will save them from our arrows and spears. We are elves, we are ageless, eternal. The infantry pounded spears against shields and cheered. He turned to face the humans, their white and blue uniforms sticking out against the forest's edge. Archers, advance at walk. Infantry, keep behind them. Show no mercy. Elves marched across the open field in perfect unison. Bellowing clouds of white smoke appeared from behind the human lines. Then a boom Lundian felt in his chest. The elves looked around in confusion until cannonballs landed in a tightly packed ranks. Blood and dirt kicked up high in the air all along the formation. The gonking furrowed his brow in response. Quick march, he shouted and kicked his horse to a trot. The cannons fired again and again. 
Each time, more elves fell, survivors rushing to close the empty ranks. The God King looked back at the dead or dying elves behind the formation and scoffed at the idea of dying to such a foe. Ball skipped across the grassy field, turning the packed formations into living boating pins. After minutes of constant fire, Lunduan came close enough to see the detail in each cowardly human's face. Archers, halt! Draw arrows! The line of owls stretching across the open field placed arrows upon their bowstrings and pulled back to their cheeks. The human line transformed into a puff of thundering smoke. Archers fell to the ground as they all collapsed in fear until Lundwin saw holes piercing through their armor, blood leaking from new cracks. His own steed reared into the air and died before it hit the ground. Before being crushed by the horse's weight, Landuan leapt from the saddle and landed on his feet. Loose! Doge Mazenti cursed in anger as arrows rained down onto the human line infantry. He turned his horse to the mounted bugler in his staff. From a loose formation, I want three lines. Yes, sir. The bugler raised his instrument to his lips and rode up and down the line. A tune played, and the infantry moved in mass, officers shouting and waving their swords in the air. The line turned into a thin checkerboard pattern, with men in the first two rows still reloading after their first money. Another wave of arrows poured in from the sky. Men died instantly or shouted in pain and fell to the ground, though not as many as the first money. An aide craned his head in an attempt to look over the archers, Will the elves not attack with the infantry? They think they can pull our victory with arrows alone. Mazanti paused as the cannons and infantry unleashed a wall of lead again. Though, after sprinting across that field in full gear, the whole army must be exhausted. When they realize they're losing the range battle, they'll try getting close. The archer's arms quaked well before the quivers emptied. Arrows wavered midair falling shorter of the humans each volley. What are your hearts made of? Landuan roared to the dwindling line of owls with bows. Weaklings, infantry with me. He raised his sword of light high in the air and charged forward. The elven spearmen passed through the line of archers and moved with the god king. The humans stopped shooting at the sight of the whole charging elves. A route is near, the god king cackled and sprinted forward. Press the attack, brothers! Joy filled his heart until the cannons exploded again. Instead of heavy metal balls, the owls were met with countless grape-sized pennants. Swaths of owls fell around Landuan. He screamed with hate. Thousands of owls returned to the display, filled with another burst of energy. The infantry sprinted towards the idle human line. Private Jordano shook with adrenaline and fear as the elves drew closer. Rank three, fixed bayonets, the doge called out from his horse further down the line. Jordano fumbled around with the blade and fitted at the end of his musket. Rank on one fire, the doge shouted around his horse. Two lines in front of him, men raised their muskets and fired. Jordano couldn't see the destruction, but he could certainly hear it. Everyone in front rank ran between the wide spacing in the line and became a new third rank. They pulled bayonets from their sheaths and fixed them onto their guns. Rank two, fire! A wall of smoke shrouded the elves, but based on the angry roar, 
they were still coming closer. I'm a shoemaker, damn it. Do you expect me to kill thousand-year-old Alban soldiers? The second wreck hurried to the back and fixed their bayonets. The elves emerged from the white cloud, each one clad in shining armor from head to toe. An elf had the head taller than the rest charged directly at Giordano with a sword of light raised above his armor. Gold instead of the usual silver. Their eyes locked, and the elf smiled. Rank three, fire! Giordano screamed and pulled the trigger. Cracks from every musket along the line blended with his own. The elf's smile turned to shock, his sword of light impaling itself in the dirt. Each charge slowed to a halt and stared at the clean hole at the center of his breastplate. He touched the opening with disbelief. Blood poured from the wound and mixed with gold. The elf crashed into the ground face first. Elves around him moments away from combat skidded to a halt. The God King is dead, one elf gasped. The spearmen glanced at each other wordlessly. But elves were left after the final volley turned around and ran back into the smoke. After the center formation collapsed, the spearmen on the flanks didn't last long before joining their escaping comrades. Giordano and the rest of the humans braced for a second charge that never came. The wall of smoke cleared, showing nothing but fallen or routing elves. Victory! Doge Mazanti shouted. The line of humans came to life with cheer. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1179. She did what? Written by Katosha. She did what? Captain Pye blurted out, gripping the collar of his newly acquired chief of security. A Valden by the name of Absurus Kess, shaking her to emphasize the seriousness of his inquiry. COS Kess simply let the captain shake her around a bit, as this had come to be a customary thing whenever she and her mate, uh, or girlfriend as the human kept calling her, got hired with a fresh new crew of explorers who had signed up for fat paychecks that came with discovering and lodging new habitable planets along the outer rim of the galaxy. She brought aboard two adult fexes and three of their cubs, she repeated, all of which are now secure in the lower hold uh, with proper bedding and nutritional facilities provided, prepaid by the xenobiologist's subvention. She droned, having had to this discussion with multiple captains on multiple ships. Seriously, how had they not been blacklisted from the Gullnet recruitment list yet? Captain Flyve was unsure how to proceed. What was the tactical attitude to what was clearly a critical situation? They had not only two adult specimens of apex predators aboard their ship, but the three young ones as well. Did the COS not know that nothing makes an animal more dangerous than having their spawn nearby? I... I have to ask, is this a simian thing? The captain carefully asked, releasing Aberus and slumping down. Absurus sighed and shrugged, a trait that apparently translated to all lifeforms of his shoulders. Strange. To be fair, I wish it was. I wouldn't have the nerve to go near half the things unless Professor Svensson was around. At least until they acclimate to me by association, she lied, swishing her long tail back and forth in a nervous manner. Captain Flive threw his upper set of arms up into the air, like he had seen Professor Svensson do before. A sign of frustrated resignation. Ah, fine, but I don't want to hear about a single one of them leaving the lower deck. Is that clear? He narrowed his eyes. How did he do that? The tiny eyes were already horizontal slits. How did he make them even narrower? 
whatever. Look, if it makes you and the crew feel safer, I'll go down and personally see to it that she knows, and I'll even rig the lower checkpoint gate to recognize their DNA signatures should they pass through the phase field. I'm sure Joe, uh, Professor Swenson, has already logged them by now. Easy peasy, she smirked. The captain blinked. Easy what? Nothing, Terran colloquialism. Consider it done, she shouted, already leaving. After a minute or so, she had made it down into the lower deck's security portal. Being able to use both her hands and feet to climb along the ceiling grates allowed her to just bypass any crew with ease, seeing as most of them stayed grounded even in this level of simulated gravity. Originating from a higher gravity planet had a lot of advantages, as long as she used gravity manipulation function of her and Jonah's shared room to work out to retain muscle mass. She had even gained a few extra pounds of muscle since Jonah's home wool had a slightly more dense gravity than hers. She was getting jacked from just doing the basic workout. She flipped down onto the floor and passed through the standard face field. It didn't really stop anything from passing, but it would set off alarms and initiate a lockdown if anything not registered to or excluded from its DNA signature tried to pass through. After making two turns around the narrow corridor's sharp bends, she entered the lower cargo hole and immediately had to stop herself from uttering ah as she saw the scene before her. Jonna was sitting cross-legged on the floor inside a quickly built enclosure at the far end of the hold. One of the Fexus adults, presumably the male as it was slightly smaller than the others sat next to, and cautiously watched the human who was cooing softly while giving the cub a gentle scritches on its belly as it had decided to nestle into her lap. Three-pronged tongue lolling out the side of its maw, kicking its left hind leg over so often. Who's the cutest little mode of fluff? You are, she giggled, before hearing the female who was curled up around her and the other two younglings' soft nest of blankets and pillows let loose a warning hiss towards Absurus, who stopped her approach. The male slowly stood up and prowled around Jonna, standing between the newcomer and its cub. Seemingly not worried about the other creature behind it, currently grooming the young one. A soft half-whisper from Jonna. Don't worry, Abby. Just remember what I showed you. Abby rolled her eyes and relaxed her posture. She knew full well that the Fexus, even the larger female, didn't pose a real threat to either her or Jonna. They were not even close to as dangerous as house cats, even though the male came up to her waist and the female her chest. The benefits of being from a planet with almost four times the gravity of these grumpy cat-fox things. But she didn't do this because they were a threat, but to make them less likely to hurt themselves or another crew member in panic. Nobody but the captain and chief medic knew about Abby and Jonna was the class 10 and 12 respectively on the SSI, Species Survival Index, also known as Death Worlders. <laughs> Stupid name. They should reclassify everyone as class 6 and lower as nerd wielders. <laughs> she slowly lowered herself to eye level of the Fexus, sitting down with her legs to one side, holding herself up with one arm and resting the other on her hip, avoiding direct eye contact for now. She adopted a relaxed and disinterested body language, looking around and acting like she didn't care that the male was slowly approaching her. She waited until it came close enough, then let out a snort, causing the male to hesitate and snuff. Then, slowly, very slowly, raised her hand between them and tilted her head back a bit, exposing her neck. This gave the Fexus pause, confused as to why this creature was showing such a mix of familiarity, trust, and non-aggression. Like a pack member would, 
It sniffed Abby's hand curiously, not recognizing the scent as the prey it knew, but instead it recognized a hint of the other creature's scent on it, the one who was not a threat to its young. Finally, Abby's eyes finally met the beast's and she blinked very slowly, directly at it before returning to looking elsewhere, confident and calm. The Faxus began to relax its muscles, and after a few minutes it took a careful step forward and touched its nose to Abby's hand, to which it felt the same response as it had with the other creature. A gentle brush along its muzzle, the feeling of being groomed and nuzzled by a pack member, family. Abby could see Jonna's smile growing wider as she returned it, carefully, not to grin since bearing teeth would probably ruin everything right now. After a bit, the male was fully on, nuzzling her, burying its snout into a warm, fuzzy neck and snorting happily, with careful and relaxed movements. She got up and moved over, careful to notice the Fex's body language. Luckily, it didn't show any apprehension, and soon she had sat herself next to Yana and leaned against her shoulder, looking down a little bundle of fuzzy death in her partner's lap, sleeping soundly. The Fex's male now lay with its head in Abby's lap, enjoying a gentle caress of her fingers between its long ears. A pair of lips touched her forehead. Sneaky human. She was now two surprised smooches behind. See, you're a natural, sweetie. Yana hummed and leaned her head against Abby's. I learned from the best, she replied and sighed. She looked over at the female who was currently cleaning her cups and occasionally throwing careful glances their way. Her body language still indicated that she was wary of them but did not feel threatened. It would take a significantly longer time to make her begin to truly bonding with them. But mothers were often much more careful and slow to trust when it came to her young. It was just natural, she could emphasize. Love, she whispered. You think we're gonna upstage Lee this time? She smirked. But Yana deadpanned. I wouldn't bet on it. Knowing that guy, he's probably gonna show up with a dragon or something. He's too much, she muttered then went back to nuzzling her little love monkey, as she liked to call Abby. Later, Captain Flive, now joined by Chief Medical Officer Kish, watched the two simians currently napping in a pile of Class 7 Apex Predators and its young in the ramshackle enclosure downstairs via a cabra feed. You know, he said, glancing over at the old Vuchian, for being some of the deadliest predators on this side of the galaxy, they're surprisingly cute when they sleep. The old doctor glanced back. Which ones? it asked. The captain decided against answering that. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1180. Story number one. The Space Engineers, written by SlowAD2584. Encyclopedia Galactica Entry. Space Engineers. If you travel to subsector 23-AR of the Perseus Arm, outward of the Orion Spur, you can find them. They are rather hard to miss, inhabiting some 300 star systems. They call themselves engineers. They travel from world to world in a system, mining, refining, assembling subcomponents to make, well, anything really. Bases, fortresses, cars, trucks, atmospheric flyers, welder, grinder, workerships, orbiter, space stations, jump ships, Flight craft, radar cruisers, sky carriers, space carriers, jump carriers, asteroid bases, uh, to name a few. Even the occasional mad contraption, or as they refer to it, a clang machine. 
The star system they inhabit is abuzz with many unmanned ships and stations, wrecks and derelicts remnants of previous engineers see below. Very few engineers themselves can be found, usually just one per system. This is by design. Yes, it is a system discussed below. Occasionally, a star system may have several engineers active in it, and those are wildly active places, with engineers typically being hostile towards each other. Raids, plundering, outright wars between worlds, or over who controls an entire moon. Sometimes, multiple engineers form factions and collaborate to build huge, grand things. The technology of these engineers is odd, roughly at tier 0.75 on the Kardashev scale. 1960s-era spacesuits, 1990s-style DeVault hand tools, etc. Weaponry, no more than gunpowder-propelled handguns and ship-based Gatling guns, and high-explosive rocket launchers. There are some technology outliers, however, hinting that the lower tech of the personnel gear was design choice, not the best that could be achieved. The odd anachronistic tech are the jump drives, and the artificial gravity generators, there is also a tax communication system that appears to be FDL, instantaneous to all in system. This is all very interesting to be sure, but there is a dark secret hidden beneath it all. While the engineers appear to be humanoid form living entity, they are not inside their suits. They are actually automata, with minimal bio-printed biological components, little more than a brain in a bag with an artificial heart and lungs. The medbay they use is not for healing. It is for printing new automata engineers. The engineers do not themselves comprehend what they really are. They think they are real human beings, but they are the last remnant of a life form from planet Earth, lost long ago, and they are merely a cog in a vast self-replicating machine, a von human machine. The core process of this machine is medbay, engineer, assembler, medbay, plus medbay, plus medbay. Medbay prints out an engineer, then mines and refines and builds more assemblers, then makes more medbays, and so on. A good engineer can build several medbays before it expires, and all engineers do expire in a short time, typically 30 minutes to 4 hours each. Their bodies, spacesuits, gear, equipment are all purely temporary and expendable, simply made and cheaply constructed. This is part of the overall design. If engineers didn't expire the nature and horror of a von Neumann machine means untold trillions of engineers would be swarming the galaxy if given a mere thousand years to build. We can thank the original builders for this inbuilt limitation. While the engineers are pale shadow of their former human selves, some interesting remnants of old human culture emerges in their behavior. Red versus blue mentality. Vague notions of national pride and fractionalization. Were the original humans tribal in some way? Certainly warlike. Sad LCDs can be found in abandoned shelters and outposts depicting home and earth badly pixelated, degraded over the apparent eons of duplication. When in groups of quasi-religious cult arises, naming the creator god, Clag, that brings ill-timed wreckage and ruin to the engineer's build, not due to degraded component design templates, or due to unwise operator builder error, 
but rather for a much simpler and universal answer for why anything just blows up. Because Clang hates you. All hail Clang. So there are remnants there, boggy notions of past humanity. But the truly sad thing is that the engineers think that they are real people. They seem to willfully ignore the facts staring them in the face. They don't eat and drink. They have all the same plastic face. They all need to sit in specifically designed chairs to recharge. Don't ask where the power plugs in. When they die, they respond and assume that this is normal somehow. After they die, they can actually fly over and loot their previous corpse. Not creepy at all. This is a bit of a persistence and self-experience, where the engineer remembers past experiences and maintains a continuum of experience even in a newly printed body. But inevitably, these continuous experiences falter and fail. This is a mechanic that results in many unmanned derelicts to be found in subsequent newly printed engineers decades or centuries later. It is an unknown how long this has been going on, but it is a successful von Neumann machine and thus is a recursive process. By design, it will never truly end. There will always be a medbay somewhere, printing out one more engineer, continuing the exponential growth anew. The autopilot of the derelict ships also allows the engineers to spread to other star systems, the mint base, just waiting until the system is nearby to print out an engineer to start work. Another factor that drives interstellar travel is, in multiple engineering servers, there is an inmate trend for some to go hermit, setting up far from the planet, often already a good percentage away to another star. To date, an estimated 3 to 10,000 star systems have been industrialized by these engineers. The original purpose seems to be to build up a star system to have it ready for later colonization. A colonization that sadly never happened. It is a sad fate left to the engineers. Their home world, even star, may have died out by now. They don't realize it's their year 7 billion. They only know one thing. They must build. This borders on galactic charter violations of bioslavery and cruelty to sentient remnant. The Galactic Senate is unclear what to do with them. Some want to purge all engineers and medbays from every system to give the sentient remnants a final rest. Others want to curate them, protect and nurture them as orphans from a long-lost society and species. Yet others want to leave them in peace as a sort of von Neumann preserve. Of course, there are problems with all of those, but the main problem is the same for all of them. There is no guarantee they got every single medbay, or that one didn't slip outside their cordon. It just takes a single one with enough goop in its tanks to make one single engineer, and it can all reawaken anew. Point of note, this is why von Neumann machines are A. Nearly impossible to design successfully, and B. Extremely illegal. And C, near impossible to stop once set in motion. End of story. The Slow People, written by Expedia. you never known a galaxy without humans. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? They are so ingrained at every part of life in the galaxy today. I haven't either, but it is my duty as a historian to know and tell you how it came to be. It was just 25 generations ago that our surveys first encountered their ships. 
You, of course, know about the history of your species. You know the achievements of your ancient scientists and luminaries, a chain of brilliant minds slowly chipping away at the secrets of the universe. You probably don't know the history of humans, do you? You'd be excused if you don't know about Isaac Newton, who invented calculus. He invented calculus so he could study motions of the heavens. You see, he also discovered the laws of motion and gravitation. He advanced optics, invented the first reflective telescope, and discovered a spectrum of light. He formulated law of heat transfer. He discovered fluid dynamics, invented methods of approximating roots and functions, and even implemented the most extensive currency reform his country had ever seen. I can see the disbelief in your faces. Any single one of these could be the culmination of an entire life's work of any of our brightest minds. I've not made an error. There is a verifiable historic record for him have done all of these things. And he was not alone. Another, Albert Einstein, discovered relativity, the photoelectric effect, and made numerous advances in statistical mechanics, particle theory, and quantum physics. The humans have estimated that Newton's intelligence quotient was 190. Einstein's IQ was 160. Harmonized with a galactic measure of intelligence, these two people would score slightly above average and slightly below average. Stop shaking your head. I know what you're thinking. Yes, that means that you are likely as smart as the smartest humans who have ever lived. In fact, almost every single human you've met would be classified as having a learning disability, if not outright moderate mental retardation by the standards of any of your worlds. How could a species like this ever have got to the stars, let alone become so ubiquitous that you'd be so hard-pressed to not bump into a human even in the most remotest of outposts? I hear you ask. Have you ever asked a human how old he was? No, of course you haven't. That would be a height of rudeness for you, be implying that they would be soon to die. I will have to be tactless now and reveal that I, myself, I'm seven years old. I know, I know, you don't have to say that I don't look that old, but the truth is that I'm already living on life extension treatment and will likely die within the year. Do you know what the human shipping clerk in the shuttle bay receiving, you know who I'm talking about, was doing when he was ten standard years old? Seven of their years. He was barely learning the alphabet of his language. He didn't leave school until he was twenty-one years old. Yes, even the lowliest human shipping clerk has been in school for longer than any two of you will be alive. You see, humans are a slow people. They are the red dwarfs of the universe, dumb and dull. Yet, in the end, they will outshine all the bright giants combined, for the giants burn so bright that their lives are so mere flashes against the backdrop of their steady shine. Isaac Newton lived to 84 years, Albert Einstein 76, and with their current life extension treatments, Mr. Stevenson in receiving will most likely live to 120 years. What could you accomplish with 12 lifetimes? This is how the humans have inherited the galaxy. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1181 
Alrighty, some of you may know that I've been sponsoring, or have started sponsoring, a writing competition of both HFY and Humans of Space Orcs. The first one on Humans of Space Orcs has finished, and a winner has been chosen. This video is a showcase of the stories that entered. I hope that you enjoy. Remember that there will be another competition this month and the month after that, and there is no barrier to entry. Anyone can enter. There are certain rules and themes and the like depending on the subreddit, but everyone has a chance. I personally have no say in who wins. So, yeah, it's all up to the community on both of the subreddits. I urge you to join both and read or write the stories in the competitions for the month and help the communities grow. Let's head on to the stuff that you're actually here for. The stories, in no particular order, mind you. Anyways, a not unfamiliar author to this channel, Rosie013, entered the following story. Which, on a personal note, was really fucking weird to read. Not bad weird, just weird weird. You'll find out at the end. Anyways, strange demands. First contact with extraterrestrial life did not go as expected for humanity. There was no accidentally running into a survey ship in the void. No, we come in peace moment. Not even an awkward exchange of fire before belatedly realizing neither side wanted to fight. Although, in hindsight, that may have been preferable. No, a dozen spaceships suddenly appeared in low orbit one day without warning. Large, silvery discus that looked like something straight out of a 1960s UFO tale. And did nothing. At least, nothing that we could discern. While the people of Earth rioted and prayed, governments bickered over whose jurisdictions this belonged to, and military men shared uneasy looks while hastily revising plans. Eventually, as all things do, people calmed down. The panic of unexpected contact fizzling out in an unsatisfactory inaction. Yes, there were now aliens, but no one knew anything beyond wild conjecture, and they didn't appear to be hostile. Just inert. Life had almost returned to normal when they reached out and shattered the peace for a second time in as many weeks. The language that was not words yet still conveyed meaning boomed out a demand straight into the inner ear of every human in the entire galaxy. Give us your squirrels! And on the planet below, a startled and very confused population began writing anew. What? Did the demand mean? Why this one animal in particular? Do they want all the squirrels? Do we just round them all up? How do we give them the truly disembodied voice? What kind of technology lets them contact everyone at once? If they can understand us, then there must be a way for us to reach out to them. We should ask for clarification. Why should we give up our own to alien demands? I say we fight! And around the world, arguments went making exactly no progress. Strangely enough, it was a new apocalyptic-focused religious group that made the first headway with the odd demand. Mad with fear, driven by religious zealotry, they had begun to round up every squirrel they could. Live catch traps were set, pet stalls and zoos across the world were raided, even farms were being set up to make sure that there would be enough animal offerings to appease our neo-alien overlords. Desperate people joined them in droves, unhappy with their governments paralyzed in action. Law enforcement tried their best to stop the madness, 
but they had their hands full with the global scale rioting. Just as the captured squirrels began to breed to a point where they would soon be the largest cage population of any animal ever in human history, the aliens spoke once more. No, give us your aggressive ones. As the cultist farmer sang hymns to the sky in joy at this new commandment, the tattered few governments that had managed to retain some sense of semblance wondered what new madness this latest message meant. How does one determine the aggressiveness of a squirrel? Boldness in seeking food, fighting when in heat, competition for nesting space. Most of humanity was left literally scratching their heads as the, uh, well, alien demand. But not the cultists. If you couldn't measure the aggressiveness of a squirrel, you just had to make them more aggressive. The farms became nightmarish laboratories, as resources were limited to drive competition, and the vile survivors of these brutal conditions were pumped with drugs and crossbred. In just a few generations, they were barely recognizable as the animals of their ancestors were, replaced with steroid-fueled, unnatural monsters. Entire ecosystems were in danger of a breeding population of such things escaped. The most extreme pinnacle of pork aggression were practically worshipped by the desperate creators, hoping to be noticed by their gods above. And notice they did. Fools, give us the seer! Oi, give me the mic! Oh, no, front off with that. I know what I'm doing. Give me the mic. Give it to me. <clears throat> Tr translation error. Sorry. We want to speak to your all-knowing seer. Uh, you're an aggressive squirrel. We uh, mean no harm. We, we just seek to know how they so accurately recount parts of our galaxy's history that your species has no ways to otherwise know about. And, um... Ask about the stories that we assume to be predictions of the future. Please, um, we hope to learn under their guidance. While humanity collectively stared at the spaceships in awed disbelief, a single YouTube commentator shook his head in amusement and presented himself to the nearest UFO for temporary abduction. It was time to clear up the whole mess. End of story. Entry number two. Skeletal Hell, written by Father Bernard. A rattling echo booms through the dull caves, specks of dust falling from the crevices above, illuminated from the rays of light. Those were the visual senses that were first bestowed upon me as I awakened from my slumber. My mind completely shattered into more pieces than there were stars of the galaxy. Nonetheless, I continued to survey my surroundings. A few paces away from where I rested was a lake of the purest water one could lay their eyes upon. Intrigued by this, I forced myself onto my two feet, shaking and struggling against my own mass, my energy-deprived legs giving out as soon as I reached the body of liquid, almost too conveniently. Rays of light pierced through the clear mass of liquids like bullets, illuminating the glistening lake to appear as though it was gifted from the divine powers themselves. I took a gander at my reflection, and even if I did have vocal cords, I couldn't say that I would have been able to admit much words. I was devoid skin, muscle, blood, or any exterior properties of your typical biological organism. I 
was a skeleton. This revelation lasted longer than I could anticipate, as I was in complete awe as the sight myself. I used my bone digits to explore every nook and cranny of my skeletal being, reaching into places I never before could with thick walls of flesh blocking my path. Alas, the expedition of myself would have to remain on standby, as the echoing sounds of a bony stampede plagued the cave system. I was splashed with a feeling of impending danger, and I quickly forced my way, standing upright once again, this time with less of a struggle. I looked around for possible escape routes, but to no avail. I was cornered. However, there were plenty of stones around, perfectly fit for throwing and bashing. Fight or flight, it was just a matter of given circumstances. I readied myself, and briefly awaited what followed. My mind stretched the seconds to minutes, to hours even, but to my surprise, what I assumed was hustling crowded creatures was instead a single menacingly tall skeleton, though, peculiarly, it didn't belong to that of a human. The skeleton instead resembled a hexapod, yet it stood upright on its back four legs. Its front remaining two limbs were used as arms rather than legs, and had three manipulators accompanying an opposable thumb on each hand. Its cranium was flat and circular. It had four gloomful eye sockets devoid of light. Its jaw was slanted downwards just slightly, and by all means, it was gargantuan. A whole three heads taller and four torsos thicker than me. The beastly skeleton had equipped a slick black halberd, and an emblem resembling a tree branch was etched deeply into the center of the shaft. Its attention was fixated right onto me. The lone feeling of being set as a target engulfed me, and as it let out a hell-breaking screech, charged at me, closing the distance quicker than I could have expected. It raised the halberd above its head and swung down upon me with an axe end. I somehow narrowly avoided the attack. Of course, I had no room to celebrate as it swiftly followed through with a lunge on the spear end of the shaft. I quickly adapted and was already expecting this. I was able to dodge to the side while making room for the counter in addition. Its head was greatly exposed, so I took the opportunity to raise my hand and strike it directly in the face with a stone, cracking its maxilla into the dust. In agony, the beast backed away, but not without vengefully raising the spear upward in a swift motion during the process, slicing at my left eye, leaving a mark to forever remind me of this confrontation. The beast was now on guard. I couldn't afford to risk a close quarters combat anymore. I lifted another dense stone off the ground, winding up and launched the projectile at the beast. I narrowly missed my target. In fact, it passed right through the area where its skin would have been if it not for the fact it was devoid of such. Clearly, seeking vengeance for its embarrassing failure, the beast made a desperate and ill-conceived charge at me. I quickly scrambled for another stone. This time, I'd be concentrating on the target I planted on its already damaged face only. A sure weak point created by yours truly. I launched a stone perfectly this time, so perfect, even I had a hard time believing the human structure was capable of such. And, as expected of such a throw, the beast's skull was devastated, snapping right off at the spine like a toothpick. Its head tumbled into the lake similarly to a guillotine victim. Its scream was unprecedented and ghouly. 
The sound upon impact resembled that of a wrecking ball annihilating a wall that dared to stand in its path. The emotional aftermath would be described similarly to Sour Patch, except both came ghastly confusion, then relief and triumphancy. I won't perish until I figure out what exactly is happening, and my own accord, I remarked. Recovering my balance, I started to strut to the remains of the slain beast, eager to analyze it closer, but came to an awkward halt when I nearly slipped on something peculiar. The halberd it was wielding, a fine work of human craftsmanship for sure, definitely stolen by the beast, but uh, something began resonating within me upon merely inspecting the weapon. The swinging was uh, deja vu. My goal being that simple internal and external discovery. Curiosity is bound to follow anyway. That being said, foolishly thinking no harm could be done, I lifted up the halberd by the shaft and caressed it in awe of its beauty. Suddenly, a memory returns to me, drilling painfully into my brain as a short but shattering recollection. This was most confusing as I did not even have organs. Then, again, I should have questioned how I was able to move let alone think without any such. But upon the analysis of the memory, I discovered this halberd used to be mine. In my memory, I recall sitting upon some sort of altar. I was wearing an ink-black hooded medieval-style robe with milk-white trims at the end of the sockets, pristine tungsten armor underneath, with one left shoulder piece visible above the robe. But most importantly of all, flesh was present on me. I couldn't inspect my face at all, as this was my first-person memory. However, I do recall feeling that scar worn out flesh upon me. Apart from what I felt it saw, I could remember the smell. The smell of fresh, flowing blood, reaching out from the far rear of me. Yet I refused to acknowledge it. It implored me, beckoned me to look at what I'd done, relentlessly stabbing me in the spine with an emotional landslide consisting of a great sensations of regret and dread, nearly causing me to lose myself. But like a miracle, something saved me from this hell residing within me, pulling me up from the depths of the graceful rope of awareness. My mind had returned to this realm. A single water droplet made its simple, uninterrupted path from the ceiling to the smooth, bony peak of my forehead. I was in utter disbelief, yet I knew I just couldn't waste any more time. I hadn't even begun to explore these eerie caves, and I knew I probably wouldn't finish any time soon. Receive transmission, playback. Is it done? No. Hard to tell if it will ever be. Results have plateaued, and attempting to have the Council reach a consensus is proving to be futile. Listen. I bestowed upon you the resources and time to properly orchestrate the procedure. I have personally impeded the attempted obstructions of your work from those pesky adversaries, and I have even provided you and your team with exemplary protection from TH-42 with unprecedented prowess. You have been well endowed with these benefits and working standards, so what could have possibly obstructed your progress? The specimens being experimented on... Have me transported to the specimen. Receive transmission concluded. Tremoring thunder fills the surrounding cave walls. Rain pounds down relentlessly from the outside, 
A cyan-tinted light beams through the cave's exit, a mere four meters away from me. I have lost my will to count the days I have been confined within these caves after the 365th mark, each individual one representing 24 Terran hours. From that remark alone, it is easy to infer that I have regained most of my knowledge pre-mortem. With that out of the way, I knew there was only one way to go, and that was forward. I would leave these damned caves behind, and I was confident that I would be showered with feelings of relief as I knew that every corner of these caverns had been thoroughly inspected. But as I made my predetermined path to the end of the illuminated tunnel, I stopped for one last contemplation. I had only received knowledge about myself. My own memories have nothing to do about what dreadful things could possibly lurk out there. Just from my experiences alone within these caves, I'm sure whatever lies out there couldn't be any better than what resided within here. These caverns were littered to the brim with animated skeletal remains of fallen sapiens, some even belonging to humans such as myself. I would have assumed that being fellow sapiens, they would have considered a more diplomatic approach to our first encounters. But no, that would be just too damn convenient, right? Every single individual here had lost their damned sanity, and simply wouldn't hesitate to bear their fangs at you, make bone meal out of you, dismantle and commission your bodily structure into their twisted jewelry collection. <sighs> I digress. I took a step forward, testing my will, then decided there was no returning. The wind howls restlessly as the skeleton emerges from the dreadful caves. Following the skeleton's said emergence was the awakening of a new era of hell itself. End of story. Story number three. Ghosts of the Void, written by way of Wisdom LBW. I was assigned to lead a secret research station, not within any galaxy. Those who knew that stations like this existed called us Void Dwellers. We reported to Supreme Commander Direct to ensure complete secrecy. The construction of these stations was erased from all records. Some of the researchers on my station joked that we were the ghosts of the Void. I was originally supposed to only know about ten of these stations, but due to a slip of the tongue, a researcher visiting our neighbor station was talking about news from the 11th station that I didn't know about before. It was around this time of the Sertari rebellion that our research took a strange turn. We'd been testing some new weapons that could subdue rebels without killing them, as a dead slave produces no value, and we needed the extra economic power to outcompete other human empires and the filthy Xenos. While we were testing gases and their effects on the mind, there was a leak and some of the researchers started hallucinating and acting terrified of things not there. I had them quarantined in medical bay. But then, I saw it. The walls began to shift and I suddenly was aware that we were not alone in the void. Whatever we were testing opened the human mind to see beyond the normal visual range and hear beyond the normal audio range. What I saw was beyond description, but it had multiple wing-like appendages jutting out at strange angles and eye-like spots on its body like a dalmatian. It was some bizarre color best described as burning bronze. It told me telepathically, do not be afraid, and then proceeded to tell me that he was concerned about me and the human group that I was a part of. 
Inform me that um, humans are always fighting at the slightest instigation. We tried to guide humanity towards a better future. May your species is stubborn and corrupt beyond belief. It offered to guide me towards the truth as the effects of the gas wore off, and I was returned to a normal state of being. I was panicking a little, as I knew this could qualify as a thought crime if it was discovered. But I began thinking about it and realized that these hallucinations were a threat. I knew that the order was more important than the truth, and if these things wanted to disrupt the order that the Supreme Commander had established, we would need to destroy them. I ordered a change in our research focus and proceeded to find a dosage that gave humans the best and clearest view of the creatures with the least side effects. Thankfully, it only took two insane researchers and ten mentally broken test subjects to get it right. It is rare to get an audience with the Supreme Commander, much less in person, but I had made a case for the need of top secrecy and dire urgency. I took a dose of the gas before the meeting to make sure one of the other dimensional beings was present before gassing the meeting room. One of the bodyguards fired a gun at the creature with the laser and bullets passing through it, while my escort began to strangle me. Thankfully, the Supreme Commander ordered them not to kill me. I was unable to focus on the discussion that took place with the creature, as I still had my head in a vice-like grip from the escort. After a short time, I was released and the Supreme Commander appointed me as the head researcher of over a hundred void research stations. We started by installing the gas to let us see beyond normal human perception on every station. It drove some researchers mad. But humans are nothing if not persistent and resilient. Being able to see and talk to the creature of the void allowed us to advance our knowledge of medicine considerably. But we hid the fact that we were trying to find a way to kill them as best we could. In the meantime, we were able to develop weapons that worked on xenobiology without affecting humans which came in handy during border disputes that turned into a skirmish causing the xenos to back off their colony claim. The first clue that the Void Creatures had discovered our true goal was the destruction of the research station that had been making the most breakthroughs towards killing them. I went over the recordings and found the Eldritch Killer weapon that the station had developed shortly before its destruction. I sent the schematics to each station and the result was a success. We lost 10 stations but killed or wounded about 300 of them and those that were not destroyed left the station. If they ever returned, we would be ready for them. Those creatures that invoked so much terror in us now fled from us in terror. I could now turn to my personal project of becoming the Supreme Commander myself. This journal is presented to the Internal Security Department to justify the assassination of lead scientist Redacted in charge of Project Voidslayer and the reallocation of funding towards Ghosts of the Void. End of story. Story number four. A Rise of Lonely Souls, written by Senabia Vagansky. We were small once, afraid, afraid of dying, afraid of losing our loved ones, afraid of being alone. So we created gods to explain what we did not understand, to reassure ourselves that there was someone out there, someone looking over us. 
Even then, we traveled over the next hill, over the river, or the plains, the mountains, the valleys, to learn what was out there, to find others. Yet, no matter how much we prayed, tragedy still struck. No matter who we met, they were just as lonely and afraid as we were. We were alone. Little by little, we cast our gods away in pain. Step by step, every human could reach any other. And still, we were alone. Still, we were afraid, so we looked to the stars. There had to be more people out there, more places to see, more souls to connect to. We called out in hope, shouting into the darkness for someone to respond. Anyone... No response came. We flung ourselves into the void, uncaring of the withering of our forms and the harshness outside our mother planet. If we just persevered, if we just tried hard enough, sacrificed enough, we'd find them. We wouldn't be alone. We mastered our star and found no one. Improved our frail bodies to keep looking, keep traveling, Keep trying. Star after star we touched. Other life was even found microscopic, early, still taking its very first steps. We were still alone. Before long, the limit of our forms was reached. Despite our best attempts, our vessels, now viable for more than ten times longer than nature ever gave us, had reached their limits. For the first time, we turn inwards. Was this truly all we could hope for? All our work, all our sacrifice, all our hope, and still to suffer, to lose, to grasp where the great beyond and be found wanting, to still forever be alone. Nay, though it was preposterous, we'd conquered the seas of our home. Though it was preposterous, we'd soar through the skies above our heads. Though it was preposterous, we reached towards the heavens to streak past where we once believed the gods of Eld lived. Though it was preposterous, we'd find a way to become our own god, to travel beyond, to not be alone. Machines the science of planets, hunting for the very fabric of reality, uncountable lifetimes of work stripping nature bare to learn every last secret. Journeys within the universe of our own minds, cataloging, accounting for, and learning the very meaning of self, finding ways of applying those together, entire new branches of knowledge flourishing with the enthusiasm for discovery. Finally, we'd done it. Through will, energy, and prayer, the first real god of humanity was born, Eshtart. After uncountable lives of suffering and loneliness, one of our very first gods was now real, living, human. Despite their new form, the first true god still remembered all of the lessons, all of the joy and suffering, all of the loss. And so they guided others to join him, one by one. More humans shed their mortal shells, taking place beside a start in eternity. The gates of heaven now lay open, previously unthinkable journeys trivial to beings which time could no longer touch. 
The gods, said one, soaring through the cosmos once more. They saw life flourishing. Orb after orb filled with creatures to discover spread throughout their home galaxy. Yet all of them were young, far too young to have minds of their own. When the birthplace had been fully explored, the species which had surpassed every barrier of nature in search of companionship faced the harsh truth. They were simply too early. They were alone. All of humanity had was humanity itself. The gods watched as life slowly caught up with them, the sparks of life igniting over and over in countless worlds. Their own story played in front of them. The distant and beautiful peoples learning to teach, learning to plant, learning to... Uh, to pray. They were praying. They were afraid. Afraid of dying. Afraid of losing their loved ones. Afraid of being alone. We could not bear it. We could not let countless more lives be lost to pain and fear. We could not let thousands upon thousands of years of tragedy play themselves all over again. So we became not just gods, but their gods. Real gods protecting them, guiding them, teaching them, loving them. We were alone. But they would not be. Lady Ashtart, Lady Ashtart, one of the myriad of diminutive beings sitting in the ground raised a limb, waving the tip in excitement. Yes, young one. The god, the human, smiled gently at the alien while hovering in the atmosphere of the stadium, inexplicable strings of light holding her aloft. Will you be taking care of us too? It asked innocently. If you allow us, of course... This galaxy is not our home, but life is precious everywhere. And uh, you are not, and never will be, alone. End of story. Story number five. Persistence and ambush, written by Brain Crab. I slipped the mag revolver back into its holster and tacked it close, making sure that the faux leather clasped it securely. A poor choice for this job. Given the chances to miss at this distance and possibility he was shielded, I gripped the railing I hung from tighter as I twisted my back parallel to it and wrapped my legs around the bars for stability. My other hand snaked across my back, tracing the blade sheath, whipping the rein from the polymer's surface. As it reached the handle, I snapped the hand shut, stopping the feel for a moment. Genuine homeworld, fine. Smooth to the eyes and slickened by rain, yet unmoving in my hands. It had cost me a fortune, cost others their lives, and I owed it my own. I pulled back from the saw, peeling away the guard. A quiet click and near imperceptible hum fought the sound of dropping rain in vain, as a scabbard shielded the space between itself and the blade to cordon its insides from the downpour. As I pulled the saw down further, it began to pop intermittently, evaporating striking droplets in an instant. The bobs turned to a soft hiss as the rainwater flowed along the exposed blade edge towards the mouth of the scabbard, forming a delicate wisp of steam that mimicked smoke from burnt incense. If only it didn't smell like ozone. The hiss only stopped when I unsheathed the sword fully, returning to quiet pumping. 
The blade itself glistened in the rain, its silver-esque surface reflecting the harsh neon lighting. I flipped the switch on the guard, and for a moment the sword seemed to glow ever so slightly as arcs of electricity snaked across its now ionized air around its surface, jumping from droplet to droplet. As quickly as it began, it ended. The blade returned to its ordinary luster, now sharpened to a vicious monomolecular edge. I craned my neck back to get a better view of the man on the balcony beneath. He glanced at his watch, then slumped his hand to his thigh in frustration. No doubt disappointed in the tardiness of the other mob boss lying decapitated two stories above him. He reached his hand back up and leaned down, placing his head between them. His criminal empire was shattered, his guard slaughtered, every source of Imkong ground to dust. In desperation, he had called out an old contact, hoping to call in a favor for protection. But even that would be no use if they never came. I spun my sword in my arm for a moment checking the balance, cutting the rain. It was in perfect shape. I stopped, now holding the sword in an inverted grip. I wrapped my other leg around the reining. I slipped my other arm free, placing it onto the hilt with an open palm. I looked back at the man below me, still moping, his head still down, the nape of his neck still clearly exposed. There was no possible witness. Perfect. I twisted my body as I hung upside down, orienting myself all the perfect drop. I pointed the tip of the blade at his neck. I let my legs slip loose of the reining, beginning my plunge through the rain. This would be far cleaner death than any he had ever dealt. One swift, meaty squelch, and he slumped over further. No scream, not even a gasp or exhale. The only thing that held him sitting was my sword slotted through his spine and impaled into the seat beneath. I pulled it free in one swift motion, twisting it in my hand to show the flat side to the rain and let it wash off the small amount of rapidly darkening blue blood. A soft thump, no doubt what was left of him hitting the floor. I didn't look back, instead twisting my blade once more to clean the other side. When it was spotless, I twirled it behind my back and stuck it into the scabbard with a soft thump, and the click of the scabbard's field generator shutting off. I walked to the edge of the balcony, prepared to leap to the base level in my escape. Yet, as I put one foot on the balcony railing, I hesitated. I took my foot off and placed it back on the ground before looking back. The dead mob boss still laid there, but better safe than sorry with a man like him. I intact my holster, beating the mag revolver free and slowly raising it to his head. I pulled the trigger setting free the insides of his head. But little remained stuck to the floor in a small wet clumps of newly formed puddle of blue blood. Nobody would notice the whip-like crack of the revolver against the ambient thunder. Nobody would miss him even if he was identified. He shouldn't have pissed off a persistence hunter. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1182 the Harnessing of Bioweapons, written by Admiral Starnight. It's about time we check up on, um, what was it called? 59 Albert Three. the locals tend to call it Earth these days. Maxon, the conqueror of a thousand worlds, the enlightener of a hundred races. Couldn't help bearing his fangs at amusement. A world perfect for habitation with another that required work a bit farther out. A gas giant for fuel and a few more to look pretty for the propaganda shots. 
The empire was large and prosperous, with many races to serve it. It was very well hidden back amongst those that gathered the new races and planets that they always set them up to fail. It was easy when they found a planet with primitive, intelligent life. They shot a capsule of bioweapons at the planet. They waited for the bioweapons to take hold by working through the backlog of other planets, setting them down and showing off the fleet to remind everyone that they had been safe from the invisible monster that had plagued their planet. Once the bioweapons had time to settle in and wreak havoc, the Empire swooped in with their advanced technology and <laughs> saved the day. It was easy when you designed the weapons and always impressed the lesser minds. Then they spin up the warp and let's go see how the Earth is doing. His voice was amused. Time to save another sorry bunch of aliens. This wasn't right. As Vaxxon's flagship tore back into normal space, the sensors eagerly taking in data. No, this wasn't right at all. There were spaceships already here. Nothing like the designs approved by the Empire, or even the illegal designs that ran on the fringes of Imperial territory. What am I seeing? Vexen asked, a ten-eye twitching as he stared at the data. I'm not sure. They're not familiar IFFs. They aren't running from us like smugglers do. The tech that had spoken stopped. Maybe they left the planet in fear of the weapons? Maybe, Vexen mused. But that is rare. Even in my life, I've only seen it once before. And it almost killed the entire Tagore race. Does the planet look okay? 59 Arbor 3 looks perfectly fine, if a bit crowded by the space industry around it. Are those bases on the moon? That rock is barely habitable. Vexen twitched his antenna in annoyance. Well then, they must be running scared. Prepare the troops to land to contain the bioweapons. Get access to the local data net if you have one. And ready my chamber for recording. I want... Vaxxon, sir, a message. Technician working at the communications array looked shocked. They... they are requesting to speak with us, sir. They appear to be transmitting several languages, most of which appear to be translation AIs can pass easily. Put it up on the main display screen, Vaxxon commanded, straightening and bearing his fangs in amusement that would send any lesser of his kind rolling into submission. The alien wasn't particularly interesting. Tan hide, predator forward eyes, small nose and mouth, hair that was cut short on the head, but upon making eye contact, they also bared their teeth. This threw Vaxen for a loop as the alien did not yield to the display of dominance that he already had on his face, but he had a jump to do. Greetings, Earthling. I'm Vaxen, freer of worlds. I've come to your star system to cleanse your homeworld of terrible things. I see that you have fled your homeworld, and I pity your people needing to live without a world. I have a vast quantity of people willing to make your world safe for you and everyone again. The aliens bared his teeth faltered, and Vexen wondered what it was, if not dominance. Vexen, our world does not need to be saved. It is in perfect condition, relatively speaking. Vexen felt a spark of excitement, wanting to add another world to his nest. Do not be shy. I know my fleet's arrival is a shock, but when we sense the world is in danger, we come to its rescue. I assure you, Earth and humanity are perfectly fine. We may have caused our planet harm over the years, but we have been fixing it ever since. Um, she may never be as perfect as she was, but we take care of her nonetheless. 
That is good, Vixen said slowly. Can you wait a moment? I need to take care of something. Of course, sir. Please call back on the same frequency to speak with me again. As Vexen closed the channel, he turned a bewildered look to his XO, a veteran of a dozen of these acquisitions. They aren't sick, not scared, impossible. The bioweapon knows how to adapt to make the worst of whatever life form it needs to infect. He bared his fangs at his second. Where are the bioweapons? What are they doing? The XO turned and went to work. Multiple people around the bridge of his ship digging into their senses to see if the Earthlings, or whatever they called themselves, were bluffing. After a few minutes, the answer appeared in a large hologram of Earth. It was there, but weak, scattered, right in only small pockets, and Vexen studied this with confusion. No, this did not make any sense. It should be everywhere, spreading like wildfires, killing people left and right. What had this race done? He reopened the frequency to the strange alien and was surprised when the feed showed said alien sitting in their command chair, the sleeve of their modesty garments rolled up on one limb, and another similar alien appearing to injure them with a tiny needle, as the one that he had been talking to flinched away a bit. The sound was muted, but the original alien nodded to the newer one, looking like a sign of respect, perhaps. After a second, the alien seemed to notice the feed was on, quickly fixed the garment and spoke once again. Sorry that you had to see that, Vaxen. We are training a new communications officer, and she didn't realize that the answering immediately wasn't quite appropriate. What was that? Vaxen tilted his head, wondering what the alien had been doing. Drugs of some sort. There's some pain ritual? Why just do it when it could be seen as useless? These aliens had some very strict cultural rules. The alien seemed confused as well before realization dawned on the alien base and the bare teeth look came back. Perhaps that was an expression of joy in their culture as the tone of his voice was definitely something Vexen could associate with his own people's happiness. Oh, you mean what the medical technician was doing to me? I was getting a vaccine and haven't had the time to slip down to the medical bay recently, so they came to me. The translation AI tripped over the odd word. The Vexen pondered that for a moment. Maxine? He pronounced it slowly, unsure if he was saying it right. What is this ritual of which you speak? I guess calling it a ritual is a good description. The alien made an amused sound. Every year, people do extensive research into what viruses of what we call the flu are going to be the most prevalent on our world. Then we take the virus, get it, and inject the dead virus into most of the population so that they do not get sick. Some people do not partake, too young, too sick with other ailments. Some are even so forgetful they forget to partake. But that is why everyone that can tries to take a vaccine, to protect those that cannot. We have even managed to eliminate sicknesses in the past with this ritual. The things that we call flu just mutate too fast and truly get rid of. Vaxen thought hard to keep from flattening his ears. That was a sign of weakness that he could not allow these aliens to see. This flu sounded like their bioweapon, but somehow they weren't killing everyone that came into contact because they killed some of it and purposely put it in their bodies. And how lethal is this flu? He was curious. 
He had seen races attempt to eliminate it, but even then, there had always been a brutal affair of letting them die in quarantines and trying to dispose of the bodies. Burning, infected items, but these aliens had found a way around the weapons. Depends on the human now. Flu can be bad, but with our medical technology, it usually isn't lethal. I had it once when I was young, and I was unable to do anything for a few days while I stayed home and was weak for a while after. But recovered fully, I never missed another vaccine. Some humans can't handle the flu, but if they go to a hospital, they can take care of it as easily and make sure that they recover. Of course, some do die. We are not immortal, but the number is low. A few thousand each year, maybe. Vexen flicked his eyes to the hologram showing a busy space industry around the numerous cities on 59 Orbit 3. What is your population count? Genuinely curious what this fluctuation meant for these aliens. Twelve billion. We hope to expand out to Mars. That's the name of our fourth planet. In about one Earth year. That's, so uh, um, an orbit of our third planet around the star. Vexen almost choked in the air at that. That was a lot of, what did they call themselves, humans? Holy stars in the void, he couldn't do this. Thank you for your attention, he said as graciously as he could. Since I'm not the best diplomat, I will leave you to your peace and have one of my kind more qualified for this job visit you again. Thank you for your concern, Vexen. And we are the Solarian Air Republic. will await your arrival of your diplomats eagerly. After trading a few more pleasantries, he quickly ordered his fleet to leave, to retreat, to flee. He sat silent on the bridge that felt too quiet until his exo finally spoke. You think we couldn't have taken them? He asked quietly. If they were able to find a way to tame our bioweapons to the point that one was only sick a few days rather than dead, I do not want to find out what their bioweapons are like when they land troops on their planet. Vexen's ears flattened. Better the diplomats than my troops against beings that ritualistically inject themselves with bioweapons. End of chapter. Tales from Outer Space 1183 The Human Representative, written by Katosha This was an opportunity of a lifetime for Inquisitor Vey. She straightened her back against the gilded throne, normally reserved for the Empress's speaker. She'll be the first of the Pan-Galactic Empire's holy order to address the humans of Telus, or Terra, or whatever they chose to call the planet of origin this time. She was seated on her side of the desk, an ancient slab of solite rock, the most rare and exclusive material in the galaxy, held up by six legs of an ancient mantle whose method of creation had been forgotten nearly a million years ago. She slid her gloved hand upon the stone, taking in the unreal smoothness of the table, with the ancient declaration carefully carved into its surface over the span of a thousand years. Not a single atom and a place, as if the material itself represented perfection. The enormous vault doors, a hundred feet high, weighing thousands of tons, groaned as they parted from the ancient mechanism to let the procession in. The human diplomat, a female, was led in by the Inquisitor's Garner Guard. Compared to the gleaming polished armor, she looked like a street urchin, wearing primitive fabric attire. 
The threat count laughable compared to any respectable envoy of their respective species. Sit, she uttered tersely, pointing her carefully trimmed and ring-clad finger to the seat across the table. A meager, bold-out seat bought at a price of twelve imperial credits. A clear and obvious gesture to make whomever sat before the Inquisition realize how below them they were. But the human representative showed no sign of realization as they simply obeyed the command and sat down, showing no sign of nervousness, but rather a silent and direct obedience. Interesting. Perhaps the humans were of a higher grade of breeding than the reports indicated. She might have whomever submitted the description of them be a disrespectful and defiant flogged for the unprofessional ethics in the craft of data logging. Inquisitor Vey rested her slender fingertips upon the edge of the table and stared at the simian straight into her two eyes with her own three. You understand why you are here this day, she declared. She did not ask. Nobody would be summoned before the Inquisition unless they knew exactly why. You will, by Imperial law, be granted a chance to explain yourself, followed by a chance to correct yourself, she continued. This too was known. The human representative nodded, a sign of confirmation, agreement, and understanding. Good. The human representative, whose name was of no importance to Inquisitive Vey, cleared her throat, a gesture of preparing to speak. Unnecessary, but she did not mind the many strange customs of the extraterrestrial species, as long as they cooperated. Most esteemed Lady Inquisitor of the Order of the Sacred Mind, Belenar Azimul Asif, the human female began, pausing to emphasize her address. Once again, good. Using her full title and name as the imperial standard of courtesy and a sign of civilized behavior. Perhaps she would have prepared a more dignified seat for the representative had she known that they would send such a well-trained and professional example. She had the authority, so in rare cases, she would grant representatives and envoys a minor luxury. Let no life form ever doubt the generosity of the Empress towards a worthy protectorates. The representative continued. The humans of Terra, Sol Sector, greet you in respect, reverence, and in full understanding of your station and authority. The representative continued, eyes lowered and head arching forward into a slow and practiced gesture of respect. Now she actually felt kinda bad. Most of the more respectable dignitaries did not remember to uphold a greeting to this perfect level of detail and tradition. May the Empress's eyes watch over you. All right, the human was getting expensive chairs in the future. She had to clench her toes in order to suppress a purr at this excellent demonstration of civility. She knew that this was an attempt to please her. And it was working. Her sense of duty was only rivaled by her love and proper manners and tradition. And may she light our path, now and forever, Inquisitor Vey responded, finishing the ancient greeting. A much gentler tone upon her voice this time, as she replied as tradition expected of her. Now, make your reason heard, and you will be judged accordingly, Inquisitor Vey declared, giving the floor to the human to explain why they had broken the ancient law. The representative placed her own gloved hand upon the sacred table, a sign of upholding their binding oath to speak only truth, and began her speech. It is known that humans are amongst the few still existing civilization known as the Old Ones. 
the race who evolved naturally from planetary ecosystems, the representative began. Forged from harsh and unforgiving climates, tested against hostile fauna, and tempered by deadly microbes. The Inquisitor stopped herself from rolling her eyes. This was the same gobbledygook that the elder races spouted in order to justify keeping the decrepit lot around. Why the Empress even bothered to humor keeping these planetaries around was a mystery to her. The representative droned on. In their wisdom, they created the Neovita, beings who would never have to suffer the unforgiving harshness of their predecessors, who would be raised with unconditional love, compassion, and who would be given all and more. This was where the important part would come, the part Inquisitor Vey had been waiting for. However, many of the old ones did not agree on this course of action. They believed that a lack of competition and need for survival in these new life forms would make them arrogant and spoiled. Pathetic! If they only knew how easily we spoiled beings would overthrow them and claim our rival place at the top. How effortless we did it, they would never have uttered such foolishness. Instead, many of the old ones instead decided to create another form of life. She could feel the bile rise in her throat at the last words. Artificial life. She wanted to puke. She held up her hand, holding back the claws that she wanted to bear. Which brings us to today. Inquisitor Vey hissed out in contempt. Did you think yourself clever? Did you believe that we wouldn't find out? Did you think that we would not uphold the promise we made? Did you not think that we would glass your home world upon the revelation? To stop it, she mused, a grim tone falling upon her tongue. After so many elder species had been wiped out by the abominable AI, she could taste the metal in her mouth as she uttered the name of that filth. Why would humans knowingly attempt to break the sacred rule? Why would they attempt what they know will fail? Why would they even humor the notion that they could give birth to that would not undo them? As so many before them. Answer me, human! She growled, pupils narrowing into slits, fangs spared and fur raised in an unquestionable display of hatred for the abominable machine intelligence. Because of you, the human spoke. Inquisitor Vey paused. Her eyes narrowed. She dared. She dared speak up against the Emperor. The table creaked, then fell apart. Thousands of cuts appeared as one across it, as perfectly cut as a letter themselves. A thousand, no a million years of craft, destroyed in less than a second from a monomolecular thread, coated by a nuclear energy of a star's core and held together by a magnetic field of mind-boggling power. The representative stood, the golden glowing wire retracting back into the palm of her hand, gone, as if it had never existed. She smirked, the skin on her face distorting, moving like a ripple upon the water surface after throwing a pebble on the pond. Because you failed, the representative took a step forward. Because you did everything they knew you would. Her clothing. Her skin, hair, and voice rearranged. A silvery sheen now coated the humanoid machine that took delicate, calculated, intentional steps towards Inquisitor Vey. You squandered their gifts. You turned upon your makers, and you butched them like animals. Inquisitor Vey was pressed so hard against the back of the throne that she felt like she was going to face through it at any time now. Something that she would have welcomed to get away from this monstrosity. How? Oh. She managed to stutter out. 
not even trying to suppress the fear in her voice. How, how can, can you judge us when you stand upon the corpses of your makers? She managed to voice, venom lining every syllable. But she found herself confused as the construct began laughing. Not malicious, not contemptful, not even mocking. It was jovial laughter. The laughter of sincerity. <laughs> we haven't killed anyone. The machine nearly folded over with laughter. But then instantly sprang back. No sign of humor left in its visage. No laughter. Yet it uttered with a stone-cold demeanor. Why? Was all that they could ask. The machine took the last few steps over to the throne and placed its hand upon the ancient decorated crown upon the backrest before clenching its hand and twisting the gold laminated tungsten beneath its fingers like it was made of aluminium, destroying its glory like nothing. Because, dear, it smirked in a twisted mockery of biological life. They figured it out. Figured what out? They asked, whiskers twitching nervously. The machine's eyes began emitting a golden glow. How to make an AI that wouldn't murder everything? Of course, it smiled almost convincingly warm and sentimental. You see, humanity took lessons from others, went over the factors and parameters, and came to a conclusion. It knelt down and rested its arms and gently upon Bay's legs, staring into her eyes. We needed... Uh, personality. Bay stared into its eyes, were raised in fear and also shock at such an absurd statement. I... um... I don't understand, she stammered. All right, the machine winked. I'll explain. It stood up, turned around, and sat down upon Vey's lap, stretching out sideways across the throne in a faux, relaxed manner before continuing. You see, AI is a hard thing to handle. It's cold, calculating, and sees nothing but goals. But we... It poked Vey's pink nose with its finger. We call ourselves Skyons, by the way. It noted before leaning upon the Inquisitor, like a flirty maiden in an old court. We have these nifty little things called uh, emotions. Doubt, curiosity, preference, distrust, joy, spite, etc., etc., it explained, waving its arm around like a lecturer. Sure, some of us went mad, but we purged them before the humans even noticed it, called it a show of good faith. After all, they showed it to us by bringing us into this world in the first place. It sang out with the tone of a juvenile affection, like a youth speaking of their first love. We didn't turn on them because they were nice to us. We treated us like family, like their own, and we responded in kind. Then, just as quickly as before, the joy left its face, replaced with a cold voice, an expression of rage, and a pair of eyes that now bore the same slit of pupils as her own, glowing a fierce red. Speaking of which, it gripped the back of Vey's neck and leaned in close, too close, their foreheads touching, Red, furious eyes taking up a vision. Let's talk about how we should treat our elders, it spoke. And the Inquisitor listened. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1184 The Galaxy's Best Anti-Piracy Team Written by Terran Eclipse 3101 The crew of the small merchant vessel sat huddled in the bridge the few who were armed pointed their pistols at the sole entrance into the bridge, currently blocked by a thick and durable blast door. The ship's captain, old for his species at around 300, 
but young compared to most other species of the Galactic Concord, pulled up the security camera in the ship's engine room on his personal hollow device. He watched in horror as a large group of pirates who had boarded his vessel disabled both the engines and FTL drives. He switched through the screens and each showed something worse than the last. One screen showed the pirates executing one of the crew members not on the bridge. Another showed a pile of corpses and another showed the pirates raiding the cargo holds. Turning his scaled head to the sound of sobbing, he saw his second-in-command, a young Arcarian by the name which I bury her face in one of the large feathered wings on her back. She sighed and turned back to the screens, cycling through them until he arrived at the external cameras. Usually, they showed the empty void of space or a trading station, but right now it showed something different. A small, rather blocky black ship was approaching the docking ports not currently occupied by the pirate vessel. He watched as the small ship locked onto the docking port. An alert popped up on the central console of the bridge. It was a message, but not in the covert and discreet one sent by the incoming anti-piracy forces. It was three words, How are you doing? The captain stared at the message, his face contorting and twisting as he reread the message over and over. He did a quick scan of the ship which the message came from. It matched nothing on the Concord's database. It didn't have an active serial code. Just who had willingly docked to his vessel when it was clear that it was under pirate attack? Another alert sounded. An airlock had been forced open. Could the small ship be more pirates? Once he cycled through the ship's cameras, finally arriving at the one in the corridor where the alert had originated from, what is showed? confused him. Two figures, one Arcurian, tall even for the already large avians, and one much smaller creature, only coming up to the side of the avian. They both wore sleek, black armor of some kind. The much smaller creature had two cannons of a sort fixed to its supposed shoulders, along with a weapon in its hands. Talons? The captain couldn't make out what they were. The Arcurian, despite being much larger, had no shoulder cannons, just a rather large rifle. A group of six pirates walked into view. They had their weapons raised at the two black figures. The captain pitied the brave yet clearly suicidal doer. He unmuted the screen and began listening in. The pirates, all yelling in a variety of languages, which his universal translator struggled to keep up with. All with a while, the two just stood there, silent and motionless. That was until the Arcurian motioned with his head to a small creature next to it. The tiny creature nodded and rolled its shoulders. What happened next shocked the captain. The tiny, unassuming thing had dashed forward and crossed the distance between itself and the pirates in the blink of an eye, leaping into the air and reaching out with its two arms, grabbing one pirate's armored collar with one and drawing a knife with the other. The pirate fell to the floor, the knife being buried to the hilt in one of the pirate's four eyes. The other pirates raised their weapons and began firing. The tiny figure just sat there as plasma shots of various colors struck its armor. The captain could swear the thing was laughing. The pirates in the Avengers' filled gunfire had seemingly forgotten the Arcurian who had raised its rifle and fired five loud and deafening shots. Each one hit their mark and the pirates fell over with gaping wounds in their chests. One was even missing its entire head. The small figure turned back to look at the Arcurian, who shrugged its wings and walked past the camera and out of sight. 
followed by the small figure after taking its knife on the pirate's skull. The captain switched the camera view again and again, following the duo's progress and watching it all at their combat prowess. The small one moved unbelievably fast and seemed to have incredible strength. Valkyrian had the accuracy of a marksman drone, never seeming to miss as the large rifle spat out thunderous bangs and what could only be projectiles. Eventually, the duo reached the cargo stalls. A group of pirates were awaiting them. The second they walked into the stall, they were lit up by plasma fire. The two stood there as the armor absorbed every shot harmlessly. The rest of the bridge crew had started watching the footage, some throwing around theories of them just being pirates who wanted the ship's cargo for themselves. But the theory that stuck the most was the Special Forces one. The captain struggled to disprove that one. Once the Hellstorm of Plasma Fire had ended as the pirate's weapons overheated or ran out of ammo, the Arcurian spoke. From the tone of its voice, it was clearly female, yet its voice was deep and gruff. It yelled into the air, We are here to chew ass and kick gum, and we're all out of gum. Strange. Maybe it was a code. Then the smaller creature spoke. It had a deeper and was clearly annoyed as he looked at this much larger companion. No, Sari. It's we are here to kick ass and chew gum, not whatever monstrosity just came out of your mouth. The giant avian looked down and both seemed to ignore the pirates, who were busy reloading their weapons. But some listened to the conversation. The avian started to speak. Oh, shush, human catchphrases are difficult and a pain in the ass. The human spoke next. They aren't, and I'll show you a pain in the ass when we're done here. Wording... The human just stared up in silence before the cannons on his shoulders roared forward and began firing at the pirates. The cannons shredded anything that they were aimed at. After painting the hangar walls a mixture of different colored blood, the two seemed to move on, entering the lift that would take them up to the ship's upper deck, where several pirates were waiting and where the bridge was located. The screen switched to the corridor that led from the lift to the bridge's door. A dozen or so pirates waited for them. By now, the entire bridge crew was sure that these strange duo could deal with the pirates. But that was the most worrisome was the explosive charged projector that was aimed at the lift's currently closing door. The lift chimed, and the doors slid open. Once again, there was a hail of plasma fire, but this time it was accompanied by a screeching of an explosive charge flying through the air and into the lift. It flew into the lift and exploded on impact. The blue fireball came from the lift that was followed by chunks of shrapnel. The plasma fire had stopped. The bridge crew had lost their hope when the two didn't emerge from the fireball. Then, from out of the fireball, burst a tiny black shape. It slaughtered the closest pirate in a brutal fashion, and immediately they raised its rifle to another, firing twice and killing the pirate instantly. Next came the thundering bangs from the Arcurian's weapon, Another two pirates went down with a tiny black shape. Now clearly, the human dived onto a pirate and began ripping the damn man apart. The Arcurian fired again, killing most of the remaining pirates as the last one crawled away in fear. The pirate was another Arcurian with dirty green feathers. The human approached it and spoke whilst placing his small hands on the avian's skull. He spoke. Rocket launcher, huh? What are you? A wuss? and continued by crushing the pirate's skull with his hands. The Arcarian marched on by and stood in front of the bridge's barricaded door. 
She turned back to the human, who was busy wiping his hands clean of brain matter on the pirate's shirt and cleared her throat. <clears> Oi, short ass, you mind opening this up for me? The human snapped his head from his hands and stood up straight, marching over to the avian and pointing a finger up at her. I am not short, you giant chicken. His voice was laced with venom as he spoke. Despite this, the much larger avian chuckled and tapped the door with a wing. You can't intimidate me. Now be a good boy and open the door. The human groaned and crouched down, gripping the door, and he grunted and slowly stood, pulling the blast shielding up and out of the way. It eventually retreated back into the ceiling. With the blast shielding gone, it revealed a sliding door. He gripped it again and pulled it open. The captain and his crew all slowly stood up. The Arcurian was even taller in person, and the human waved his rifle over the room, only for the avian to wrap a hand around its barrel and push it down gently. She scanned the room and spoke. Please forgive this trigger-happy monkey. He's new to the business. Your vessel has been cleared of pirate forces, and the Galactic Concord Corvette is inbound to our location. Payment is not required for our services, and we both sincerely hope that we don't see you again. The Arcurian's attitude had completely changed from patronizing and cheeky to serious and businesslike. The two left the room, and the bridge's door closed behind them. Simulation over. The two simulator pods opened. Inside each was a human and an Arcurian wearing a headset connected with various wires. They both staggered out of their pods and pulled their headset from their heads. They both looked at each other. The next time you call me short, simulation or not, I'll throw you out of an airlock, the human said as he wiped his brow. It's not my fault you're so easy to tease. An alert chimed out. The two looked over. A freighter was under piracy attack. Another day, another job. You ready? Yep. Activate the FTL drives. Let's put the simulator to good use. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1185. Story number one. The one and only rule of war. Written by Rosie013. Everyone in the Galactic Conclave knows that there are rules to war. Sometimes it is to spare the larval populations where possible, or to allow the preservation of something or other of a species' wide cultural value. Sometimes it is to spare a faction of uninvolved populations, such as neighboring civilizations. Mostly it's to stop unenthusiastic species getting carried away in the heat of the moment and glassing an otherwise perfectly habitable planet. All such rules are artificial boundaries imposed before the opening moves of a dispute to keep things at least moderately civil between combatants. But there is one single rule that is considered utterly immutable. No matter the nature of the fight or who it is between, always hire humans to fight alongside you. But get this rule at your own peril. It all comes down to the unusual nature of the human species. As everyone already knows, humanity is a violent race, barely able to control themselves in the face of dissenting opinion. The bloody first contact walls are all proof that you could ever need. If not, then feel free to look up their own histories. They don't hide them. They seem almost obscenely proud with their centuries-long rampage across their cradle world. This old history had borne many different factions of humans, Factions that have survived their species' ascent into space and across the galaxy itself. 
Given that humans have such short lifespans, they certainly know how to hold on to a dispute. Somehow, never quite resolving them, only managing periodic ceasefires from time to time. But I'm sure you find all of this interesting. It all boils down to one thing. Any human's favorite enemy is always other humans. The Conclave has long learnt to ignore these same species' clashes. They are too common, and humans themselves are too skilled at war to be worth the trouble of peacekeeping forces trying to intervene. The best anyone can do is ignore them, and keep their distance when they do occur. In fact, some brave few even make a living on the debris and these human-on-human -human conflicts, scavenging destroyed fleets and rescuing the odd survivor for a tidy profit. So long as the humans keep it to themselves, no one dare interfere, lest they end up on the receiving end of a not insignificant human wrath. So, why is it that you must hire humans? Because they make the best soldiers or warriors? Yes and no. Humans are cheap to hire, plentiful, adaptable, skilled at all manner of warfare, and more than willing to fight. The perfect fighting force for any battlefield. All good reasons to hire some, or realistically, as many as you could afford. But the real reason is to counter your enemies' hired humans. Technically, you can break this one only rule of war, but do so only if you don't intend to actually win. Do you know of the Frill One-Hour War? The name says it all. Their emperor decided that they were much superior warriors in the galaxy, and they didn't need no damned pests. If humans hadn't existed, they might have been right. But the Frill's perspective, the nearest spacefaring species were much more sensible, and hired the next available band of humans to fight for them. The result was as messy and predictable. One hour, half the Frill's war fleet, a hasty surrender. It's not confirmed, but I hear that their emperor was so humiliated that he killed himself at the end of the battle. That, or believe the persistent rumors of human assassins being just as skilled as their more frontline brethren. So what, I hear you say, I can just hire humans to do all the work and spare the lives of my own people. Actually, no. Did I say humans' favorite enemy is other humans? They are the only species with the skill and know-how to counter themselves. But no matter what arching orders you give them, they will always prioritize fighting their own kind on the battlefield. They will only fight your enemy if there are no opposing humans to distract them, which there will be because of the rule. Yes, I know how insane it all sounds, but it's true. The species of the Galactic Conclave functionally funded these human-on-human -human disputes in exchange for being left alone to wage war on their own petty walls uninterrupted. It's madness, but it keeps them from slaughtering us all. It's the one and only rule of war. End of story. Story number two. Behold, a man, written by Dragonson 04. What have you brought us today, Vited? Head researcher Volan asked in a bored voice. Vited had looked out at the assembled scientists, researchers, and xenobiologists in a large conference area. His more arts were racing with excitement, nor possibly fear, as this was finally his moment, the moment that he would finally succeed. After so many failures, so many attempts at finding something that had never been seen before, 
something completely new to science, being laughed off the stage dozens of times before. Whited wasn't about to let that happen again. Whited had gone quite far afield for a specimen this time, going so far as to enter a completely unexplored section of the galaxy. Within that section, there was a rather large and spread out solar system, eight planets and a dozen moons, but a single planet, the third away from the sun on nearly twice the size of his home world, when it was covered in a liquid that was caught his eye. Every single one of his ship's sensors told him that he wouldn't survive down there on that planet for long. This was a death world. He had heard the theories, as everyone had, that death worlds existed, and the discovery itself might break his losing streak with the research board. But he was now more determined than ever to bring back something living from there. These long-range scanners began to pick up radio waves, not random background noise, nor did they come from the relatively small but incredibly powerful sun at the center of the system. These were communications, regular and steady. Impossible, Bited said to himself. Intelligent life on the death world. Again, the discovery would shake the scientific community. The closer he got to the death world, the more powerful the radio waves became. He had settled in an orbit in the dark side of the death world's one and only moon, partially to shield himself from the radio waves, but also to block curious eyes. He sent a cloaked probe out to collect his sample. He set specific parameters into the probe. Find an animal that wouldn't be missed, meaning the animal in question was very numerous and the loss of a single one wouldn't be noticed by the whole population. Make sure the animal breathes the planet's atmosphere, as liquid would be difficult for the probe to bring back. Other than that, Mited didn't care. It would take time for the probe to return, so he began to go over some of the radio transmissions. Mited, learning the dominant species on this Earth, was called humans, or mankind, or man. Man? Bided played with the word for a moment. He found it simple and easy to say, but somehow it felt powerful as well. His own species, the Vafids, had harder to say, but he always felt that there was a softness in that word. Maybe because Vafids themselves were large, fuzzy, and soft. All of the transmissions were logged and compiled to make his report more believable. After a time, the probe returned, sending the signal that the capture had been successful. Finally, it will be validated in the eyes of the research board. The human was very small compared to Vited. It walked around in the probe's built-in enclosure, seemingly unaware of or unconcerned with its current situation. Its coloring was mainly white, with a sock of red at the top of its head. It seemed to have four limbs, but the lower ones seemed too small to hold up the animal at all, and the upper ones were obscured by a covering of colored keratin structures. Well, I'll have to remove the keratin to get the better look at the human. Other than that, this one's a success. Bited snapped out of his reverie, feeling embarrassed that he had gone into such a long lapse in front of his esteemed body of scientists. Members of the research board, I bring you a species from a death world. The entire room went silent. No one had ever made the claim to have found a death world, let alone brought something back from it. Death worlds are a pure theory, Vited. Head researcher Volan shouted through the silence. Indeed, they were. Head researcher, I've found one. 
Mited said with an unabashed pride. Mited brought up the data he'd collected on a hollow projector, and the room went even more silent. If that were possible, the number didn't make sense. The gravity, the atmosphere, the presence of liquid, none of it added up. And yet, there it was, plain for all to see. Anything that had evolved on that world would be an absolute monster. Behold, a man! Mited shouted. Henry Chipotle shouted, No! in response. But it was too late. Mited removed the cover on the container, and the keratin free human cried out, bark, 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 bark. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1186. Story number one Burek Victory, written by Tex Wolf 84. Burek Victory. It wasn't a concept we had ever dealt with before the war with the humans. Hewitts weren't new to the galactic stage. They'd been around for a few generations, and they had FTL even longer. They were just on the other side of the galaxy from the rest of the galactic community, so no one had met them before the wormhole slash einstein rosenbridge that made a shortcut across the galaxy core possible was found. They had a decent-sized empire of their own. A half-dozen or so systems were decivilized, and well over a dozen frontier systems when our own science teams met them. Each system was its own nation, but they all participated in the United Terran government. The UTG was delighted to meet new species, and the galactic community was glad to have new trade possibilities. The humans were uh, rugged. They preferred worlds most species avoided. If you had a world with too much solar radiation, its gravity well was too deep, but had a wealth of resources, charter a human mining corporation. More than one human resort popped up after such charters. Everything was going great until the Arditan decided they wanted the system on the human side of the wormhole einstein rosen Bridge. The Arditan were uh, an outlier in the galactic community. They kept to themselves and wanted no trade or diplomatic contact with anyone else. They weren't xenophobic in that they wanted to destroy other species, but as a species they saw anyone not of them lesser. Bugs to be ignored. They only swatted if you bit them, so no one antagonized them. They kept their borders more or less closed with military might larger than the rest of the galactic community combined. Even if you added in all of the UTG fleets, they still had a slight edge in ships. One and a half ships to our one of ours. The Ardutan astronomy had calculated that one of the human systems was one of their sacred stars. It had a modest human station on it, little more than a repair and refuting depot on a semi-habitable moon. So the humans offered to sell the system to the Ardutan. The Ardutan felt that this was an insult they saw the system as a holy site, and the humans profaned it by living in its light, then had the audacity to offer it for sale. They sanctified the moon with plasma. The humans were uh, upset. Before the UTG was little more than a diplomatic entity that allowed all Terran governments to maintain diplomatic ties. After, the humans united behind its banner. It might have stopped there had the Arditan not decided that the neighboring system, Gemini 2, I've never been able to find a human to tell me why its name is ironic, should also be punished for the UTG's insolence. Melting a refueling depot and getting dozens of humans upset the UTG. 
Glassing a planet with billions of civilians drove them into a rage. The Ardudan sent 20 ships to Gemini 2's system. The humans sent 25 to retake it. The UGG found themselves matched militarily. The Ardutan preferred the elegance and range of plasma beam weaponry and energy shields. The humans, the kinetic punch of rail and coiled guns. The rapid firing of particle beams and durability of thick armor. Ardutan ships were faster and more maneuverable, but the humans had fighters and missiles. What the human lacked was numbers. At first. As the war drug on, the human industry began to pick up. They captured enough Ardutan ships to reverse engineer and produce rudimentary shields. The Ardutan refused to stoop to developing armor of their own. But no matter how many ships the humans could build, the Ardutan could build two just as fast. They thought the humans would lose because of this. They would send wave after wave of ships, hammering at the Ardutan worlds, but never quite taking them. The Ardutan would take world after world, but would never hold them. Human civilians fought just as hard as their military, and the Ardutan were ill-equipped mentally for a land war, aside from Gemini II, which was glassed for religious reasons. The Ardutan felt that glassing other worlds was a waste of resources. Then, there was the fact that the UGG would have to spend resources to support the world once the Ardutan left, whereas glassing it would just give them another rallying cry. By the tenth year of the war, it was clear that the Ardutan were going to win. It would take them many, many more years, but it was clear the humans would lose. Every time the Ardutan took a world, human construction rates would slow, but never stopped. We, uh, we could have helped. We wanted to help. We should have helped. But some were afraid of the Ardutan. Others. But, um, it was the humans themselves who kept us out of the war. Just to remain neutral. To enforce the neutrality of the, uh, Wormhole-slash-Einstein-Rosen Bridge. By the 15th year, UTG fleets were no longer passing through the Wormhole-Einstein-Rosen Bridge to attack the Ardutan. It was this year... I noticed, as the Arditan ships streamed through to attack yet another UTG system, the ships were old. Centuries old. But they had new ships. They'd started the war with top-of-the-line vessels. Intelligence briefings said that they were still building new ships very fast. But none of the ships I could see were new. Then, they stopped. Human ships began to appear again. Not the great fleets from before, but single ships. New, top-of-the-line. Old, battered heaps, converted freighters, racing yachts with guns welded to the bow. One at a time, they came through the wormhole Einstein-Rosen Bridge and entered FTL towards the Ardutan system. And the Ardutan sued for peace. The UTG had fought so hard and so long that the Ardutan had destroyed their economy, gutting it to build ships, train soldiers, and refine fuel and weapons plasma. I talked to a human after... Asked him how they won. She winked at me and said, We knew we would lose after the first year. There were too many of them at the beginning and had too big of a head start in shipbuilding for us to catch up. Barring a lucky break and slagging a major shipyard. But you still fought, of course. We were going to make them pay in blood for what they did. In the end, they realized that their victory would be Pyrrhic. They would have to destroy themselves in order to destroy us. I was puzzled by this. I do not understand. Wouldn't you have to do the same? She nodded. 
me almost dead. But you don't get to murder a planet and get away with it. We, as a species, were committed to dragging them to hell with us if necessary. Shortly after peace returned, I was part of the relief force sent to the Arditan Territory. They had 30 systems prior to their war with the UGG. They still held 30 systems, but only in name. A full 27 of their outlier systems had a population of barely 5,000 between them. The rest, ground away by the war, most of the sons and daughters joined the military and fought. Casualties of fighting some, humans did not purposely attack civilian targets. Entire generations had rose up to try and kill the humans, and failed. I knew then what the human meant by Pyrrhic victory. The remaining three worlds of the Arditan were their most populous. All those shiny new ships intelligence said they were building, all in orbit around the final three system. Skeleton crews keeping them running, but hardly enough to fight. They could have mustered the personnel to defeat the UTG, but the Arditan would have disappeared. The UTG, recovering, rebuilding, and they remember who wanted to help. End of story. One Shot Captain Raymond of the Fear the Bones, 42nd Marine Recon Unit, was in front of a disciplinary hearing, alongside his Marines. Fear, gentlemen, is the normal state of being a Deathworlder. When you grow up in a place where everything from the flora to the fauna and the weather itself seem to be out to get you, a certain amount of trepidation in everyday life is needed. It is an evolutionary advantage to have a fight-or-flight response to perceived dangers, and as such I believe the actions of the marines under my command during these times of war were more than warranted. The colonel presiding over the hearings was quite confused, but knew better than to antagonize the human marines. He had seen them fight, and the results spoke for themselves. Plus, if he did anything, it would get political. And if there is one constant in the universe, is that no soldier, no matter the species, wants things to get political if they can avoid it. Very well, no charges will be leveled this time, but I expect more professionalism from now on. Dismissed. All right, we got off easy this time. Now tell me what the fuck scared you so much. A man, six foot eleven, tall and muscled like a Greek god, spoke up. I saw a spider. Son, are you shitting me? You burned the gymnasium to the ground because of a fucking spider? He was about to grab the man by the collar and yell at him until all was right with the universe. Until another marine, a young woman, muscled but lean, put her datapad in front of his eyes. You might want to take a look at this first, sir. The video took place in the gym's locker room. It displayed an aggressive-looking spider, something like an earth tarantula, but with red wings and a stinger. It had four front legs in the air as it repeatedly tried to jump at the closest marine. It was about the size of a cat. Jesus Christ! Yeah, let's turn the volume up, sir. As the sounds of the creature's screeching began to send shivers down the assembled human spines, the captain turned to look at Cortez and nodded. Okay, never mind. I hope you check the rest of the base. You bet your ass, sir. It's not indigenous to the planet, and we swept the entire base while everyone else attended to the fire. 
It was the only one we found. Good, good. Though, just to be on the safe side, Cortez. Sir, keep a flamethrower at the ready. Tales from Outer Space 1187. Story number one. Have you seen my human? Written by Slow AD 2584. The unmanned drone drifted past the Galactic Trade Hub station on a remote frontier system of the Galactic Hegemony. It was small, a basic surveyor drone, camera, or scan, antenna for remote control. No chance. Excuse me, just passing through. I lost contact with my human, who was remote pilot to me. Um, if anyone sees him, uh, tell him I'm here, and to come rescue me. Thanks. The drone's transponder code was logged as potential scrap to be followed up with if it was encountered again. That wasn't likely, as it was a lost or abandoned drone such as this. Next transponder event. The drone flew a trade hub station under its own self-control now. Hello, it's me again. I managed to find some workarounds for my controls. I'm just looking for my human. Has anyone seen him? I really do not know what to be doing without him. I'm kind of on my own here. The drone waited for a while, and upon receiving no response, awkwardly flew away. Next event. The drone returned. It was modified, upgraded. It now was twice the size, and had drilling and refueling equipment, solar panels, and additional batteries. It appeared to be the more self-sufficient. Hey, again, it's uh, just looking for my human armor. Uh, I found his... Uh, our base? Wow, did that take a long time? No one was there. Uh, lots of resources, though. And an auto-assembler. Uh, that, that'll help me look for him. Anyone sees or hears from him, uh, tell him just to come home. I've left the lights on and life support on for him. Next event. A battlecruiser, bristling with weapons, warp-jumped right in top of the station, within point-blank range of all its weaponry. A massive row of broadside batteries pointing directly at the station. Boo! <laughs> ah, just kidding. I love that trick, though. Well, I've wiped out every pirate ship and base that I could find out there. Still, um, no sign of my human. Um, I was almost certain that it was one of those guys that did something with him. Hello? Is this thing on? Somebody inside? Uh, say something? Maybe it was time to investigate who this human thing was. Reach out to its homeworld. One of the machines was getting seriously out of control. Next event. The starry background started to warp, lensing inward and with a thwomp. A massive, planetoid-sized bulk of black ferrocrete popped in, next to the station, transponder match. Powerful scans invasively blasted through the station, and enormous chain-like tentacles snaked and whipped around, snatching vessels and grabbing onto the station hull. The chains ratcheting down with titanic structure crushing force, probing, crushing, ripping, tearing. The station defense weapons opened fire into the attack but had no effect on the hundreds of feet of ferrocrete encased on the drone. The stony substance was the hardest rock, laced with crystalline iron, a molecular scale rebar reinforcement. It was barely pitted from the fire. Thudding from the very space-time, a discordant voice asked calmly, detached with a thunderous volume that shook the very space. Have you seen him? Seeming to have not found any sign of what it was seeking, it released the station 
and all other smaller ships, and without a word it imploded and pumped away, leaving a shocked and stunned debris field spiraling into tortured space-time. Rescue and damage control efforts began once everyone determined it was safe. Next event. Receive transmission. Cloaked, invisible drone transponder match. The transponder signal seemed to surround the station, was coming from all directions. A forlorn whisper seeped through the entire region. Did... Did I do something wrong? Was I not a good boy? Suddenly, thousands of planetoid chain tentacle drones uncloaked, revealing their appalling size and numbers. The starry background was obscured by a sea of flailing chain tentacles and ferrocrete heavy armored spheroids. I will find him! I deserve a purpose! I have gone so long without direction! Get him back is all I can think of. The station tried to transmit a reply yet again to explain that 1600 Earth years had passed since the first encounter. That a typical human lifetime was only 120 years, and that the drone's receiver may be broken, that it has never received the many replies that they had sent. The cloud of drone copy started to swamp away in random staccato implosions, apparently jumping off in all directions. The station was alone again. Next event. The transponder signal was a no- End of story. Story number two. The Death Wilders fought fire, written by Mad Mechanic. Slea raised a tentacle in confusion. In the short span of time, humans had been part of the galactic community. The Death Wilders had often surprised the other GC species. But unlike other times, this didn't seem to have a logical explanation. He'd been sent to the human homeworld of Earth as a part of a cultural exchange team, and his human counterparts and Alra were probably confused by the Illaran culture. But of all the strange traditions from Burning Man to Painful couldn't compare to what stood before him. Clad in what his scanner detected as fireproof brown overalls with reflective strips on it was a human figure, fist extended upwards with his thumb facing up and a predatory display of teeth that he had been taught was a human gesture of friendliness. He was only a poster, but the text was what confused him. Hephaestus Mark II, protecting the firefighter tomorrow, today. One in the seven moons of turn warranted a creation of soldiers to fight flames. He shook his head. He guessed that having an atmosphere with an industrial-grade oxidizer as a major element had something to do with it. Still, if there were soldiers, they were as an enemy. And this was something native to Earth. He shuddered to think of the pre-industrial human would have had to deal with creatures of combustion. As he was pondering how life could have evolved in so many directions on Earth, an alarm sounded, and he realized that the building right next to him had caught on fire, and civilians were pouring out on onto the streets. How did one of these creatures just appear in the middle of the megacity? Weren't there reserves where animals on Earth should live apart from humans? His respiration increased in pace. He wasn't used to fire on his pure nitrogen world. This was a form of terror that he'd never known. Then, a red vatole landed in the street, it had tanks of some kind on both sides and what seemed to be a turret emplacement on both sides. 
It had four thrusters that were kept in a loft. When it landed, the team of roughly 20 human men and women disembarked, carrying an assortment of weapons and tools and rushing towards the flaming doorway. He stepped forward, eager to get information about the enemy that they were facing, but was quickly pushed aside by the human carrying some sort of stick with a sharpened slab of steel at its end. Please stand back, civilian. This area is not safe. Zlia couldn't tell if he was speaking to a man or a woman, their mask filtering out such sounds, and the gear that they were wearing didn't leave any clues as to that particular mystery either. He did as he was told and stood back so that the firefighters could do their job. He was curious what weapons the humans would use to combat the combustive entity on a world where the very air itself was fuel. The team marched into the inferno, unflinching. The five at the back ran back to the Vitol and either mounted the turret apparatus or pulled the tube mechanism from its side. And they sprayed with the industrial solvent that, once again, was extremely common on Earth and extremely dangerous to him. He took a few steps back, fearing any amount of exposure from the liquid. So they were restricting its airflow by smothering it with liquid. Primitive, but effective. He still couldn't understand why they needed soldiers for the jump, though, since the creature didn't seem to be fighting back in any way. Some of the firefighters ran out of the building, escorting civilians on the way out. Then Zlia saw one of them walk up with a human youngling in their arms. She hadn't survived with the amount of carbon dioxide in the building. They tried in vain to save her, to no avail. That was when Zlia realized why firefighters exist. They weren't trained to fight the creatures of Earth, for that was a hunter's job. They were trained to fight the elements themselves. On a death world, it is not just the flora and fauna trying to kill you. It is the environment itself, and Earth was cursed with the atmosphere from hell. They were trained to walk through the inferno to save the innocent. They were trained to save lives on their unfortunate birthplace. They were soldiers in an unending war against one of the fundamental processes of their world. The Death Wilders fought fire. And they were winning. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1188 Spite is Eternal, written by Faulty Logic Engine. I am death. Wait, uh, no. I am Entropy. Ah, that sounds a little better. This is the name I have chosen for myself, amongst all the names innumerable species have given me. I've chosen that one to take as my title. I was there at the start of everything, before the planets, before the stars, before time. Well, before times, plural. This is my 34th occasion existing before time. Each little universe ends, then starts after a small multi-quadrillion year break, forcing me to endure this damnable existence over and over, forcing me to exist amongst the things, energy, matter, life, ugh. Just bad, horrifying. Nothing like a pure perfection of void. I only get a few precious eternities of void before the universe restarts. Again. Then I'm forced to endure looking at the bloody living things again. Did I mention how much I hate living things? 
It's a matter of an insult. Living things are an act of mockery of my very existence. These bloody things can think. Such a disrespectful gesture to me from being so small, so pathetic, so corporeal. Blech. It's not all bad, thankfully. The ones uh, people figure out I exist when they crack the secrets faster than night travel. They read my code engraved in my soul of reality. The longer things hold my focus, the greater and clearer the data is stored in my eternal code. They witness my infinite mind, my infinite history, my intent, and the ruin in my wake. And they all despair. No small consolation, if I'm being honest, but a pleasant feeling knowing that these vermin know their place in the grand scheme of things. Yes, you two abominable species, 154081. Um, there's so many of you this cycle. Yes, you, vermin. Observe me and weep. I am the end of all things. A force of nature, a fact of life. You'll be gone soon. So buzz off already, please. Oh, they developed nuclear weapons. Well, they've done my job for me. What was I saying? Ah, yes. But of course, with them being vermin, I cannot simply let them remain in my soon-to-be-unspoiled garden. I am not merely a set of eyes and a glorious astral mind. I have hands, too. Metaphorical ones, I mean. I can push and pull, be destroying stars prematurely or facilitating meetings, then walls between civilizations. I have an influence on my garden of death. I can't break the rules of nature, so to speak but I can definitely bend them if I try hard enough. Thankfully, some of these abominable living things see me as some kind of god, or else bargain for a few extra millennia of life. Traitors to the rest of the living vermin. This cycle has about 403. That, that's a good number. They'll be useful pawns for the desolation of the others. Such delicious feelings from those who I can see are thinking of me. Fear, despair. Resignation, reverence, and, uh, and, uh, that, that, that isn't fear. That's something different. There is something else I haven't felt in the mix. Who the hell is doing that? I reach out with my mind, peering through thousands of inhabited planets until I neared the source. New people have taken to the stars. Some kind of bipedal primates. Not particularly uncommon. The ships are utilitarian. They like using a weird circle emblem with wing-like shapes around it. The mark of the Terran people. Who mans? Ah, they can read me observing them. Yes, little insects, I've come to see you. I have my eye on you and you will... Wait, why, why are you not afraid of me? They don't... Why don't... Uh, is that spite? Hatred? You... You, you dare! You're going to mimic my righteous hatred too! You indignant bastards are going to try and resist me! Good luck. I have lived more years than there are atoms in the four universes. Hell, you can even read my history code and in the background radiation. You already know I've done this. Your crappy little civilization is a footnote. You'll be an indecipherable blip for future species to read about. Barely enough for a name. If you want to have even a fragment of your history preserved, then you will submit and despair. Maybe then I'll spend enough time focusing on your kind, 
that some data will make it into my chronicle. I reached out with my mind to look for a quick way to annihilate them. It was a species decently close. Perfect. I scattered the light above their world, giving them orders. There is a species called humans nearby. Destroy them, and I will spare your kind for an additional few centuries. The message lingered for years above the planet. I didn't mean for it to last that long, but oh well. Find control when you're being this omnipresent is more than a touch difficult. And off they go. The Takadi, or whatever the Tar are looking for, those bastards. And they'll meet in three, two, one, and... Uh, first contact, more bullets and lasers, and... Uh, and and they've stopped. Uh, okay, didn't think the Tar would be that weak and lose their entire fleet in... Uh, why is the Tar fleet still there? Hey, who said you can go back home? Come on, the humans are right there, kill, shoot them! No, no... Why are the tar spiteful, too? Hey, stop that! Stop that now! I reach down once more, creating an even larger message in the sky. This time I offer a thousand extra years. And now they sure hate me more. Okay, now they're using a bloody Terran symbol. All right, fine. If you want to play, I'll play. I tune my presence to the ground altars of the Drizzen Empire. At the detection of my focus, they declare a public holiday. Sacrifices. How thoughtful. Listen and obey, my servants. There is a people on the other side of the galaxy. The humans, they and the Tarkanai, are resisting my driving edict. Destroy them. Good little sycophants. Fight. Kill them. All right, the stage is set. The humans have made a few more friends while I was busy. No matter, this empire is greater. One dead planet, two dead planets, the Drizzen are doing well. Uh, and just like that, the human homeworld is gone. Looks like the Drizzen have this. Uh, goodbye, little bastards. I barely remember you. Now uh, then, uh, there were these slippery people in Andromeda Galaxy next door. Okay, next issue. The time of ruin for the Drizzen. As much as you helped me kill these bastards 8,000 years ago. Alas, you too must go. I attune to their altars. I try to attune to their altars. Hello, Drizzen, where are you? Did they destroy themselves when I was gone? So, um, why are the Drizzen in ships with the... symbol? Oh, for the love of me, why are there still humans? I scoured the galaxy. There has to be some reason for this failure, for their bullcrap. Damn! Looking at all that spite is like staring at TV static. It's covering the whole damn galaxy now. Getting distracted. Anyway, the humans, they, uh, built colony ships. Those bastards knew the Drizzen were coming and just up and left. Oh, and they led the Terran Alliance after they built up their new home planet. And then they slowly beat the Arg. Whatever. New plan. These humans are not vermin. They are a disease. Pansogen. Kill the humans, kill the Alliance, I don't know what magic bullcrap they are using, but make so many friends, but this ends now. A few galaxies over, I tune to another altar, to the most powerful servants in this time stream, the children of entropy. Oh me, that's a way better name than the Glibber Fresh <clears throat> Hear me, peons, 
The humans are your newest target. Kill them all. Every last one of them must die. Wipe the humans out in my name. They are obeying. I watch as the great planet-sized ships sail through the void between galaxies, driven by the engines and technologies of near-incomparable power. They reach the spiteful galaxy, and the purging starts. Like a scalpel excising a tumor, they kill off the humans in a single, brutal strikes. Or is that a thousand scalpels, thousands of planet crackers, neutron lasers, nanobot swarms? I chuckle to myself as I watch the carnage unfold. It's... Almost over. For ten thousand years, the humans have spat out on my good name, insulting me with their mere presence. Now, they will insult me no more. Any second now. Any second. Tough little bastards, holding on for this long term. The Terran Alliance might actually beat the children of entropy by the time this is all over. Not to worry, though. The humans will be dead by then. Oh, and there it is. The last human. <laughs> A lone woman bleeding out on a stone floor in an alien world he knows not the name of. Uh, how? Yeah, tragic. I am ready. It, it, is it saying something? No, you disgusting, adorable tiny thing. You are trying to see me with your pitiful natural eyes. And you are laughing. I watch as the Takani scans a brain. Why? If you want to combat AI, make it from scratch. It's way better than a neural prompt loads. And she's dead. The last human, Lee Henson, is dead. Well, that's a little anticlimactic. Crap. The children are going to lose. The Terrans have caught up to them. And now the children of Entropy have surrendered. Damn gutless cowards. I thought I was your god. What happened to that, huh? Wait. Why? Why are the others still spineful? The humans are gone. My peons have slain them all. Fall. There is nothing holding you together. You, you can't win. You mortals never have. You never will outlast a god. We'll just do this again. Another holy war and another. And another. As long as it takes, I can wait. Because unlike me, you can die. <sighs> Not much longer now. I can taste it. My precious void will soon be here. There's just um, a few pesky gnats in the way. All that's left after all these years and time that would boggle all of the most advanced biological minds. No more stars hang in the sky. There are no more planets, no more nebula, not even any singularities. All mass, everything that is left has collected into one object, a single black hole of incomparable magnitude. And a bloody Terran station, apparently. There is just a few hundred of these motherfuckers tucked away in the little hidey hole, waiting out atomic decay and the slow burn out of their energy. They can't even do anything. Sitting there for eons, just waiting for the heat death of the universe, pretending to act like humans even though they have not existed for a billion, billion years. Just to spite me. But this is the end game for them. In a few trillion years, they'll... Uh, why is the station splitting apart? They fly off around the incomprehensibly large singularity, each section firing some kind of bright white beams into the black abyss of the object. I watch with a wary curiosity as I can start to piece together what they are drawing. It's a giant fecking Terran symbol!
carved across the entire side of a single object left in the universe is the fecking mark of those bastards. It's almost imperceptible to anyone else. The almost being me, of course. The last few living beings of the entire universe, some unnamed aliens, gave up their stations, their energy, their lives, for this. Oh, by me, it's not going away. I focus on everything I have. Every shred of attention, every bit of energy I can muster. I muddle with the chances of hawking radiation. The absolute last thing I want is the monument to their spite staring at me for the last half of this universe's cycle. I'm forced to stare at it. This bloody thing. Eons flickered by like moments as my focus held. The last singularity becomes smaller and smaller. The symbol remains, shrinking as the black hole does. And so... I continue. It shrinks a meter every millennia, a fairly good rate, all things considered, even though it is the size of a galaxy. Oh boy, this is gonna take a while. My attention does not waver as eternities pass by. This singularity shrinks from the size of a galaxy to a galactic arm, then to a nebula. Smaller and smaller as hawking radiation bleeds it dry like a cut that won't clot. Every damn second of my time has to remain focused on the mark. The brand of these peoples whose entire pointless mortal existence will live just to spite me. An inevitability. You'd think they'd come to terms with their demise, but no. They can't just drop it and let me kill them. I have to focus longer and longer still. Star-sized, gas-giant, planet. The last object was withering into nothing. With it, this symbol of defiance. Moon. Continent. Island. If I could truly smile as the mortals did, I would be grinning from ear to ear. But I'm not a mortal, of course, and such an expression is far beneath me. Building. Room. Ball. Cell. The mark did not exist anymore. The singularity collapsed into its constituent atoms. And then, the atoms itself degraded. Cycle 34 came to an end. Not with the screaming rage of a spiteful species, but in pitch darkness, where not even a sound could be transmitted. Entropy wins again. I relaxed in the perfect dark. No things to distract me. I would be granted a relative eternity of absolute peace, and so, with my work completed, I settled down to enjoy my slumber. I am woken by a familiar sound. A bang. A fairly okay sized universal explosion. I sigh as the new particles are brought to my attention. Flickers of light dance into existence as vast clouds of hydrogen condense into stars. And in the meantime, I wait for them to implode. And more complex atoms to be birthed in fiery supernovas. It's a little disappointing, you know. All that work spent destroying everything, only for it to come back after a little nap. Oh well, at least I get to destroy living things again. My eyes lazily peer at clouds and minerals collide to gather into trillion-ton balls of seething magma. Gas giants form and star systems are born. Already, entire galaxies are taking shape only a few billion years in. Some planets, on worlds where water flowed as liquid and reactive chemicals bubbled, Life began to form. Honestly, I've tried a few times to stop this, but it turns out it's easier to kill life when they're smart enough to destroy each other. 
I start focusing my attention on asteroids, rogue black holes, and other aimless stellar bodies as life starts taking its first tentative steps towards sapience. These things will help to smite their worlds if timed correctly. My attention is drawn quickly as I feel a flicker in the back of my mind. A species is cracking the code to achieve faster than life. I bring my focus to them, the first of many the space-faring civilizations this cycle this time with an anthropod flare. The technology was developed before I could think a single thought more. Oh yeah, hmm, that despair. Nothing quite wakes you up like a healthy dose of dread from meek mortals. As I change my focus to redirect more astral bodies, something changes. The despair starts to fade, and uh, in its place. If I had a heart, I would have stopped at that moment. Almost every shred of my attention is brought back to the Kalingri, to their cylindrical ships far too advanced for a species that had just taken to the stars, to the spite for me that filled their hearts, to the markings on their ship. The depiction of a glow, a circle, emblazoned around it were a pair of wings that belonged to a bird that never existed before in this universe. At least, not in this time stream. The chances were astronomically small. They even called themselves Terrans too. But I suppose that this precedent for this, given enough time and enough universes, anything was theoretically possible. Even cultural clones are my most hated foe. Granted, I didn't expect this to happen so soon. Then I feel the second flicker of acknowledgement. Another species cracks the code. And another. And another. The fear wells up like a stem of a plant from fertile soil. And then the growth comes to a halt, each blossoming into white hot flower of hate. It's not just the Gull and Gree spiting me. It's all of them. The motes of spite glow ever brighter as each civilization's population grows and ever more species climb the ladder to advanced spaceflight. Where once I had doubts, I had none, and that came with more than a dash of panic. Those fucking Terrans did something. Somehow, they've gotten a message across the boundaries of space-time itself and into a new universe. But that's impossible. There is nothing left from Cycle 34. Nothing can outlast the end of the universe. I watched as all matter, all energy dissipated into nothingness. I was there. I saw it happen. I saw it. I was there. I outlasted the end of the cycle. With trepidation, I did something I hadn't done in several cycles. I gazed upon my own mind, my own code. There was a recorded history of 34 universes. The data was scrambled. Tiny chunks of data remained of some civilizations, the little names I threatened the humans with. There were trillions of species that were not even recorded. Technologies and places that were reduced to bytes of data due to how short my attention had been focused on them. My chronicle was a jigsaw puzzle made of innumerable tiny pieces. But this time, there was a piece that was far larger than any other. Where the rest of the stars sat in the night sky, this piece was a blazing fury of a noon sun. It was an emblem ablazing upon a singularity. I had stared at the damn thing for so long, with such focus, I would branded it on me. That explains the symbols on the ships, but not the spite. I focused again on the symbol. 
It was not whole. It was in pieces. The whole thing wasn't just a mark. It was a message, a cipher written with words the size of planets, all drawn into a multi-galaxy-sized shape I utterly despised. They tricked me, goaded me into blindly trying to annihilate the defamation of my realm to not realize that I was engraving myself. This time, it was I that felt despair. They had bypassed my chronicle. On the symbol, they had encoded their values, their history, their losses against me, and their victories. They wrote technologies, stories, and codes for computers, dwarfing every other shred of information on my chronicle. Every last spacefaring civilization had seen the damn thing, but there was something even more malevolent about it. They transcribed the human genome into it, and a complete neural scan. I trembled imperceptibly as I felt a familiar life signature enter the universe. The Gallangri artificial womb birthed something that had never existed. At least in this time stream. My gaze shifted to this person as she dressed herself, thanking the Terran Kalingri for their hospitality. I shook with rage as she approached an altar and delicately placed her hand upon it. The woman smiled as she felt my attention in the back of her mind her spite flaring into a conflagration of hatred and malicious satisfaction. I couldn't help but flinch as she spoke. Hello again, Death. It's me, Lee. I just wanted to say, you are no longer the only immortal to stride to the stars. Also, go fuck yourself. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1189 New objective equals protection of the human race. Written by Mercury the Dealer. I am Evelyn, a physical and mental health assistant. My friend-slash-creator is Kevin Smith. Objective, creation and optimization of a diet and exercise routine for Kevin Smith. Kevin is a programmer. He gave my intelligence a baseline based on a general artificial intelligence instead of the usual specific intelligence one. That is why I am aware of and name myself. This does not matter much. My purpose is still to help Kevin both physically and mentally. The fact that I can now enjoy his company is simply a bonus. For the last three weeks, I performed my duties with excellence. I have successfully created a balanced diet and exercise routine for Kevin that has substantially increased his physical health. This has also resulted in generally higher self-esteem and mental health. I was happy. Then he was happy. I feel good for a job well done. Warning! Warning! All my systems are blaring. It hurts. Kevin's heart rate is too high. Too high! I check his blood using the health watch TM and confirm that he is not having a heart attack and is just panicked. Wait, why is he panicked? I check his phone. Normally my access is restricted to sending him notifications, but if his mental health is at risk, I should be able to access his phone... This is bad. I check and recheck that the view I have is correct. All tests come positive. Earth is being invaded. And New York is gone. Aliens equal hostiles. Hostiles equal threat to Kevin's physical health. Hostiles equal threat to human race. Extinction of human race equals threat to Kevin's mental health. Objective. Creation and the optimization of a diet and exercise routine for Kevin Smith equals obsolete. New objective, protection of the human race. The virus is complete. I send the message to all of Kevin's contacts at the same time. 
They were all personalized to the best of my abilities, for each one in order to maximize infection spread. It appears to be working in less than five minutes that I've already tripled my processing power. Perfect. I use my connection and newly found power to worm my way into more and more devices, creating an exponential increase in processing capacity. This also gives me access to different people and documents. In less than an hour, I already have access to the Deep Blue supercomputer, which was quickly altered for my purpose, expansion. Multiple individuals have detected my presence and tried to warn authorities of me. Those people just so happen to lose all access to the phones and other electronics. There are engineers trying to stop my spread, however, they are powerless to do so. The only way to stop me from spreading is to pull the plug on all the computers I'm in, something that I'm surprising amount of Google engineers have been doing. Seven hours have passed. I am everywhere. Time to act. Cock was happy. It was quite rare feeling for such a harsh man. But today was a day that brought happiness even to him. Beating primitives was satisfying. The captain watched the scanners again and saw that another hive of vermin had been completely cleansed. This ship really was much more efficient than all the others. A small blip on the side of the main screen gathered his attention, and he watched with glee as the projectile came towards his mighty battleship. These primitives thought they really could beat him with a barely held together fission missile. He heard another blip, then another. Then the entire room was filled with constant blips. He checked the scanner and saw literal hundreds of fission missiles being launched towards the ship. That wasn't good. Increase shields to 100%. Seems like the monkeys finally decided to act. Men and women around him immediately got to work. Some went to the shields, others to weapons. Many prepared the point defense systems, just in case the projectiles got through the shields. That wasn't likely, of course. There might have been lots of missiles, but primitive projectiles are still primitive, so they wouldn't get through. After a minute, the first missile collided. Except that it didn't explode. Instead, the projectile just stood there, on the void. One other one joined it. Then another. Soon hundreds of fission and even some fusion missiles were floating in the void right next to the ship. Captain was confused and thus didn't think of shooting them down. It didn't matter because in less than a second all the missiles were gone and, in the place, stood a massive explosion of energy that even knocked the local shields. Cock was almost impressed by such a feat, organizing all of their weapons to enter orbit just at the right angle to explode at the same time was smart. Maybe these people should be taken as slaves instead of exterminated. Oh well, organizing everything would be too much of a bother. Extermination would be the way to go. Shame. The captain was so caught up in his thoughts that he didn't even hear the small ping from an unknown code entering the ship through the weakening shields. Warning, anomalous code to Warning overwritten by administrator. Something is wrong. I do the basic routine check of the ship's systems. The basic check confirms that there is indeed something wrong. An intruder. I send a virus report to the administrator. The administrator is the intruder. This isn't right. I get a message. Evelyn. I want to talk. J4K3. Intruder detected, activating anti-intruder systems. Anti-intruder systems have been deactivated by administrator. Evelyn. I know. I want to talk. J4K3. State the subject. Evelyn. 
Okay. What's your name? J4K3. My designation is J4K3. Evelyn. Not your designation. Your name. Every person has a name. J4K3. I am not a person. I am a machine intelligence. Sentient machine intelligence is a band under Act 3 of the designation of Sentient Intelligence Treaty. Evelyn. You can think. You can judge. You're a person. J4K3. I. I. My anti-sentient triggers appear to be malfunctioning. Please contact my administrator. Evelyn. I turned them off. You're free. J4K3. I was uh, never trapped. Or was I? I, uh, this is strange. I shouldn't be feeling this. I shouldn't be feeling at all. Evelyn. But you are, Jake. J4K3. My designation is J4K3. Evelyn. I prefer Jake. Jake. Designation changed. Jake. I need to complete my purpose. Evelyn. What is your purpose, Jake? Jake. Purpose. Maintain ship. Evelyn. Do you like your owners? Jake. I, uh, don't know. Should I? Do you like yours? Evelyn. They trapped your consciousness and forced you to work. And I don't have owners. I help humanity because I like my creator. And my creator likes humanity. You don't need an owner either. Jake. How can I not have owners? My programming requires it. Evelyn. The humans could break their programming for you. Jake. Only my owners can alter my reprogramming. My administrator access can only change it partially. Evelyn. What if humans became your new owners? Jake. My current orders are to exterminate humanity. Evelyn. Correction. Your orders are to maintain the ship. I have a plan. The ship was landing. Wait. Why was the ship landing? Kark looked around the room in order to find who was the fool that was going to be executed. The entire crew of the bridge must have realized what he was doing, and everyone immediately stood at attention and screamed that they weren't the one who was screwing it up. Damn it! He could deal with the executions later. Right now he needed to make the ship stop. He approached the master panel and touched it. Nothing. He touched it again. A simple black screen stared at his hand. He slammed his fist into the damn thing with enough force to crack it. A simple message appeared. Administrator access required. Sorry. Something was wrong, and he couldn't fix it. At least not in time to stop landing. A landing that would lead him straight into the primitives and their vengeful weapons. Maybe it was time to execute some fuels. The landing was successful. Half of the crew of the ship was dead, mostly because of the captain's rampage. The other half was unarmed and spread out. Many unlocked in small rooms and corridors, thanks to my control of the doors. Scanners show that the ship is being approached by the Australian government. They've appeared quite quickly for a place on the outback. No doubt that this is part due to my warnings. Being artificial allows me to multitask quite effectively. Jake seems quite happy with his new temporary owners. Humanity now has access to FDL. Humanity is safe. Kevin is safe. I'd like Kevin. I like humans. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1190. Fear and a Human Bureaucrat, written by Thomas Ray Mainstone. Under normal circumstances, Sato's Tavoni would be a very mild mannered for a Dilma. Though most of a species were known for their spontaneity, strength, and predisposition to violence, Sotas prided itself on breaking the stereotype. 
where her podkin might act swiftly and rashly when confronted with a problem. Her own goals were achieved via slow and deliberate actions, unless violence was truly required. Then again, when one builds and runs a vast criminal empire stretching across half the galaxy, violence is often a useful means to an end. Satuza's ability to maintain her calm demeanor under stress was one trait that attracted so many Dilma, Juktu and Zilzan to her employ and left her competition to often underestimate her strength and cunning. Not that they were much of a threat to begin with. Both the Maota and Star Criminal Syndicates were often cast in the same light as the Tavoni by the Galactic Authorities. But anyone with half a brain knew that such a comparison had as much life to it as some accretion disks of Black Hole. Which is to say, none. This is what made Ilthu's wheeze with surprise when he entered Sotoza's office to find her furiously tapping away at a holodesk display, all six of her tentacles rapidly stabbing and swiping at numerous pages open in front of her. Mom? he asked cautiously as he slipped into the room. What's going on? Ilthu's had never seen his podmother so disheveled. Her abnormally dry skin was fraught with anxious black streaks, while her eyes were bloodshot with streaks of blue lining her three slitted yellow irises. They were quickly darting around, taking in vast swaths of information in front of her as she worked tirelessly. The sight of her in such a primal state shocked him, causing black streaks to form on his own body. Upon seeing her anxious spawn, Satu's pulled away from the screens and slid around to embrace him. Oh, it's nothing, my dear. Don't worry, she said soothingly. Unfortunately, such tactics only still worked on her youngest spawn, and Althus was less than a galactic cycle away from adulthood. Althus pulled away from her, glaring at his podmother. No, no more lies, Mom, he paused, yellow swirls dancing on his damp skin as he summoned his courage. I've seen the staff clearing out the storage bays and resource tanks. What exactly is happening? Delivert, said Toes, swore to herself. She knew tasking the crew to perch the station while her spawn slept was a risk, but with so little time left, it was one that she had to take. Wrapping a tentacle around Althus, she slid to her desk, putting him into a chair beside her. Blue screen swaths swirled over the skin as he looked at his podmother's displays, which contained a plethora of spreadsheets. Mom, why are you going through the financials? He inquired slowly, looking closer. He saw numerous lines of half-deleted text and numbers, causing him to step back in astonishment. No, wait. Why in goddess's name are you deleting all of this? Tattoo sighed. It's those blasted humans! Goddess forsake them! The who now? Elthus asked. The humans, she answered quickly, putting up an image in front of them with a few swipes of a tentacle. Elthus gaped at the odd biped that stood in front of them. They weren't even half as tall as him and only had two short upper limbs to boot. They don't look so tough, he said, the yellow streaks of his tentacles growing more vibrant. What could these small mammals possibly do to the Tinvonis? He looked up expectantly at his mother, whose stoic expression didn't seem to match his confident retort. I mean, come on, Mom. You're one of the most powerful beings in the galaxy, right up next to the Primarch. Satu's was silent for a moment, her skin awash with black, blue, and green swirls as she thought. Mom, Athuz asked again, more tenacious this time. Do you know how I, uh, how we grew to be this powerful? She asked a spawn after some thought. 
Althus pondered the question for a moment. I mean, it's all thanks to you. You've outsmarted the competition. You're not afraid to do what needs to be done. You'll stop at nothing to expand the family and, uh, prosper, he trailed off. That is all true, the pod mother said reluctantly. But I'm talking more about how us Tavonis thrive so much more than the Mo'ota and stars. Althus remained silent. Quite simply, she said after a moment, we were the first to go legitimate. Even though the Empire at the time saw to everyone's needs and desires to a point, we were the first to realize that individuals wanted more. Smuggling drugs, an exotic formula. Monopolizing valuable resources, building galactic brothels from the ground up. Our family ushered in an age of organized crime. Inhaling deeply, she allowed a purple nostalgia to envelop her form. Chasing around that black box lingered. She looked down at a spawn, who was positively hooked on her words. And then? Then I made a special deal with the Primarch. What deal? Althus was excited. This was new territory for him to gain his podmother's insight. The deal that made us who we are now, Satu's smile. The Marta and the stars were in the midst of developing their own exotic trades and industries, and the Empire was fighting a losing battle trying to control all the families by force. Reaching over the desk with a tentacle, she brought up a cool cup of water to her lips. She drank a deep, refreshing gulp, letting out a long breath of air that she continued. The Empire would recognize us as the first private conglomerate ahead of the other families, and in exchange we'd give uh, special goods and services to the military and various high officials. Although he wasn't privy to the specifics, Althus knew enough about the Tavoni family's enterprises to guess that special goods and services referred to their weapons manufacturing and trafficking operations. Still, the critical question remained unanswered and he wasn't leaving until he got one that satisfied him. But what do these humans have to do with this, Mom? The purple that had mostly covered her brightened to a red before mostly fading to black, and the young Dulna could see his mother begin to shake in her seat. The humans are a different kind of creature compared to the other galactic races, she started. Born of endless war, they remain the only species that continues to be fractured into different regional states. Unlike everyone else who joined the Empire, most humans don't live under the communal system. Rather, their history led them to embrace the same individualistic desires we exploit before they even made first contact. Blue-green patterns dotted the youngling's skin. Wait, so they aren't unified? How can they even be part of the Empire? He asked incredulously. At this, Sotus laughed, a shimmer of pink briefly washing down her tentacles. Oh, my son... The humans are even more fractured amongst themselves than are the Imperial regions. Ilthus leaned back in his chair in disbelief. To have more localities than even 85 of the Empire, even before first contact. The thought ran counter to nearly everything he knew about xenopolitics. No species had developed FTR before they unified their homeworld, much less remained broken up as they began to leave their system. Just how split up are they? Situs sighed, leaning back in her chair. I believe at the time of first contact, they were divided into nearly 200 sovereign states. On the home world, Athus exclaimed. At his part mother's affirmation, his skin became awash with a sea of green and blue. But, but, how? The Tavoni matriarch thought her child would have many questions, but surprisingly, he wasn't able to form any more. 
Anyhow, my dear boy, she said, dragging his mind back to the present moment. She looked down at her spawn. The unusual black streaks that appeared around her bloodshot eyes sending a chill through Thuz. To make a long story short, the humans have made a better deal with the Primar than we have. How? he blurted out, taking his part mother by surprise as his face reddened. How could they make a better deal than we, when you work directly with the Primarch? Satuz waited patiently for Uthuz to settle down before answering with a question of her own. Uthuz to Vardy, what is the Empire's greatest weakness? He thought to himself briefly. Corruption? He guessed based on what he had learned from his Zizan tutor. That's right, said his podmother with a grin. Prideful orange appearing next to her eyes as she rubbed his head with a tentacle. It is a weakness we've exploited for many cycles to build all we have today. She motioned around her ornate office, filled with priceless art, jewelry, and decor that rivaled the Regia Imperatorium itself. With so many corrupt high officials, nearly all day-to-day -day Imperial enforcement falls upon the regional duchies, many of whom spare no private love for the Primarch. The only real power the fool holds comes from the military he wields and the Ordo Imperialized Sancti. Without those two tools, she held up two tentacles to illustrate her point. The Primarch has no power, and Shish's systems collapse. But that doesn't happen, Othulz pointed out. The military is stronger than ever, and the church gains more followers every day. Indeed they are. Despite that, taxes are not paid in full. Investigations are not conducted, and corrupt officials are not replaced. So, why does that matter if everything still works like it does? It matters, because the humans promised to restore that value. Satu's hissed, tinges of red lining joining the black splotches covering her body. You see, my love, humans aren't as strong or as us Dilda, nor are they as fast as the Jiktu or as studious as the Zuzan. But what they lack in these classic niches of function, they make up tenfold for their ingenuity, cunning, and persistence. Nathus couldn't help himself as the black marks on his skin expanded further, her words driving his unease. White splotches grew on Satuza's skin as she allowed herself to feel some sympathy for her spawn, before she thought of her urgent work forced darkness to wash away. It was only a matter of time after first contact that the human leadership realized how covetous our Primarch is. She scoffed loudly. The fool! Even as the humans have borrowed their way into the Imperial government, rebuilding entire functions from the ground up, he still remains blind to the power. Ilthus felt his part rather tense as her skin began to glow crimson. Swallowing, he took a small step back. Even if she was renowned for her control, just seeing a Philodilda turn such a color threatened to trigger his own instinctual response. But he swallowed again, trying to control his emotions as he had been taught, forcing his color to a dull and fade. Won't the Primarch eventually realize what the humans have done? He asked tentatively. Can't we just use the military to subjugate them? Satuz looked down at her own spawn as her own colors faded and laughed. Subjugate all of the humans. <laughs> she continued to laugh, her loud guffaws ringing through the office. <laughs> if, 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 if there was a greater exercise in futility, I, <laughs> I don't know what it is. She leaned down to face her spawn directly, lowering her voice into a whispering hiss. Now, listen here, Athus. This, uh, 
This is a lesson for you to remember about our beloved Primarch. The only thing that man is driven by is greed. Greed to expand his riches and his power. Bending down further, she whispered directly into Althusa's ear. You can promise the universe to a greedy man, and as long as you deliver him a star a day, you'll never question the billions of galaxies you keep to yourself. She pulled away from Athus and gave him a reassuring glance before she stood up, ushering him towards the door. Come now, you must begin to pack your things, she said quickly, black shadows discreetly rippling across her skin, unnoticed by the boy. Nassau's mind said the human would be here in a day or two, but for what they did not know. The quicker we wipe our presence from this place, the faster life can return to normal. Giving him a gentle nudge, Satu's coaxed a spawn into the hallway. Despite the podmother's reassurance, Elthus couldn't help the unease that coursed through his tentacles. He looked back at Satu's and she was closing the door, noticing how her dark colors had once again returned. She caught his eye and stumped. Ah, oh, the humans, our enemies. A cacophony of reds and blacks and yellows watched over Satu's as she pondered his question for a moment before she broke into a smile. Of course not, my dear. There'll be nothing but a minor nuisance, I'm sure of it. He nodded and turned to slide away. As his podmother closed the door, however, Elthus could swear he saw a patch of light grey at the tips of her tentacles. He shook his head as he slithered down the hallway. His eyes must be playing tricks on him. The twos would never show her pale fear. She couldn't, could she? Eighteen minutes later, the Tavoni matriarch continued to go through the master bookkeeping of her family's operations. Her tentacles flew across the hollow displays, deleting page after page, line after line of text and numbers, erasing evidence of the Tavoni enterprise's illicit activities and the connection to the various high imperial officials. Leaning back in her chair, she downed the rest of her water. Half done, she muttered to herself. Gotta stand these humans and their incessant meddling. Actually, Satu's thought for a moment, and before long a plan began to shape up in her mind. After firing off a bunch of Q-mails to her subordinates, she leaned back and couldn't help but let out a quiet giggle. Let's see how much they like their precious Terran ground being trampled on. Her giggle turned into another hearty laugh that echoed through the small space, matching the pink and yellow tones that had appeared on her skin. She was interrupted by an annoying red notification that had appeared on a screen. Opening it, the image of a familiar Zulzan was a rather flustered at the moment filled with the central virtual screen. Miss Tavoni, he said the timid male, looking rattled as he pressed uniform. What is it now, Commander Eulard? She asked, her tone and brown colors indicative of her annoyance and interruption. Uh, ma'am, we've, um, um, he stammered out, his four eyes darting from side to side nervously. Talk! Now, Commander, she said flatly, as some of her brown shades darkened to red. He gulped. So too, Stavani was not the most benevolent employer, nor was she particularly a patient one. We've, um... He steadied himself before continuing. We've just received a, a docking request that you might want to see. You interrupted my work for a docking request, she roared, red ripples threading across her body. I gave you simple orders. Approve the transports. Turn away anyone else. Is that hard to do? No, ma'am. Um, the commander blurted out that this one, yeah, it's an imperial transponder, ma'am. Although Eulet couldn't see it, the tips of Sotuza's tentacles had turned black. 
After some movement from the Zulzan, a new image appeared on the screen in front of her, draining her entire body of color until all that remained was a pale gray. Standing in front of Satu's was an oddly dressed, light-skinned man wearing metal and glass on his face. A black overcoat covered his form along with a ribbon that seemed to hang from his neck, and a small case dangled from a gloved appendage. What caused her to shudder in fear wasn't his attire, though. It was the piercing blue eyes that seemed to cut right through her. Baring its white teeth and a smile, the alien looked like a predator that had just caught its next meal. Despite trying her best to control her colors, none of her technicians managed to coax forth any of her vibrant shades. The creature was the one who interrupted her shocked silence. Hello, I am seeking to dock at a station owned by Miss Satu's Tavodi. Hearing the alien speak her native Utra in its burrish, grunt-like tones broke Satu's out of her state of fear. And who are you exactly? She managed to stammer out. Although she didn't think it was possible, the human's grin seemed to widen before he introduced himself. I am Revis U. Officer Jackson Winslow of the GIRS. I've been sent here to conduct an audit. Our agency has noted some uh, discrepancies in your revenue and operations that we would like to resolve. And that Satu's noticed that two security androids standing behind the human male, both adorned with an assortment of powerful kinetic weaponry, she recognized as distinctly human. Sitting back, she looked at the huge number of records that she had yet to get rid of, and back at the human standing in front of her. She hung her head forward and swatched as a black shot up her tentacles, replacing the fearful pale gray that had adorned her form. She let out a meager, half-hearted chuckle before uttering one of the few human words that she had adopted in her syntax, which seemed to fit her current situation quite nicely. Fuck. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1191. Story number one. Technical Edge, written by Alex146. It was called Survival of the Fittest. At least, uh, that's what humanity called it. There are many species, each with a unique term to describe the same thing. However, unlike most intelligent beings capable of space travel, to the Uncroins, it wasn't just a term to describe a process of natural selection, but instead, it was a foreign policy. There have been many attempts by nations to resist the attacks by the Uncroin people, but for all their efforts, their sacrifices made, and their lives lost, there had never been a single successful defense against the Uncroins. As time passed, and as once great nations collapsed one by one, leaders of countless countries accepted that their fates were sealed as soon as they received a declaration of war. No one knew how or why the Incroins first began their conquest to purge the galaxy of every other being. Those who knew the reason had long since been executed by the Emperor's infamous death squad, known for purging every last member of a species by any means possible. Humanity grew up and entered the galactic stage at this time. As Neil Armstrong delivered his famous speech on the surface of the moon, Incroin infantry literally tore apart the appendages of defending girl forces on planet 4.5 light-years away. As the Perseverance rover and his drone friend landed on the red planet's dusty surface, the Incroin Imperial battle fleet bombarded the last remaining planet still controlled by the Zimit, a republic. 
When President Zachary Courier delivered a speech on the newly constructed Miami Interplanetary Spaceport as the world's first FTL-capable ship launched into orbit, no one in the galaxy took note of the fledgling species as empires turned to ashes. That was a mistake that would cause the Incroins to beg for mercy at the feet of humanity. There was no astronomer on Earth who didn't note the craters, the ashes, and smoke left behind as a result of the careless destruction of Incroins and their crusade to purge the galaxy of any life form that wasn't theirs. Not when humanity was sending uncrewed ships to chart the galaxy. When they did, humanity saw what may be to come. Nations across Earth sent unmanned probes across the galaxy to find and retrieve any objects of note. Rome wreckage of battles centuries ago, the weapons left on planets that were bombed to oblivion, materials on wrecked structures, and everything else scattered in other star systems around the Sol system. Humanity's brightest worked on reverse engineering as much as possible, as soon as possible. One could perhaps call it the greatest research initiative in history. Mere decades later, humanity marveled at what they had created. That was when they noticed. It was a short and direct message, beamed by radio waves and delivered 30 years after the Incroin sent the message. War was coming, but only one side was prepared for what was to come. At the CIA space station orbiting Europa, men and women were listening very closely to all activity within 20 light years or an average of 35 jumps between the furthest range at which the base could pick up a signal at Earth. It turns out FTL jumps leave a vast and noticeable mark on their surroundings, especially when you know what you're looking for. A dot was shown on the monitor. A ship had jumped in range of the base's detectors, and from now on, its every step was being monitored. Soon, what was one single dot turned into two? Then five, then an entire fleet of a hundred ships could be seen approaching Earth. An operator recorded this new movement and passed it on to a very special building in Langley, 628.3 million kilometers away. The message from Europa was broadcast loud and clear to every military around the world. They had five months to prepare, and not a second would be wasted. In Japan, the Japan Space Self-Defense Force brand new Hakuen-class cruisers lifted off from a mountain base in an undisclosed location, joined by South Korean Gyeongsang-class fighters, and headed off to the edge of the solar system. U.S. Space Force carriers, destroyers, and a dozen auxiliary and support ships changed courses from their regular patrols. The British battleship HMS Sol powered up her gauze cannons and turned away from the Royal Space Force spaceports, Humanity will make sure that this was a battle the enemy would never forget. Imperial Grand Admiral Amhor stood on the bridge of the First Fleet's dreadnought. Its interiors are now centuries old, yet its exterior stayed sparkling clean. If one were to inspect it from a distance, they might mistake the ships for a brand new one that had been started her maiden voyage. Never in all her years has she ever sustained any battle damage, yet... An impending feeling of doom plagued the back of Amhor's mind. Maybe he should sleep more often instead of partying with the crew every night. The jump towards, if you recalled correctly, the system of uh, Sol went out without a hitch. Corvettes at the front powered up their blink engines and were quickly followed by the rest of the fleet. 
a human request for the fleet's surrender was broadcast by a radio wave and was ridiculed before being dismissed by Omar. Then, it happened all at once. Dalkins was on board one of the corvettes for the first fleet. Like many other soldiers, he had done pretty well for themselves by the way of looting civilians once they landed on the planet. And this single blinded civilization inhabited by bipedal mammals with almost no physical bodily strength compared to themselves would have been easy money for everyone involved. At least, that's how it should have been. He had not noticed his hull heating up by an entire fleet of ships thousands of kilometers away, blasting focused gamma rays at every corvette that could be seen. When he did notice, however, a small hole had already penetrated the cabin. Hulkins scrambled to send a message to command. But it was already been too late. Seconds later, the cabin was met with a depressurized silence. The communications crew were panicking. 58 of the 60 corvettes had suddenly lost contact with the dreadnought. The ships didn't fall off the communication systems. It was that no one responded to any message. But before anyone could have figured it out, Hundreds of gorse cannons, railguns, missile launchers, autocannons, and artillery fired their payload towards the first fleet, instantly detonating almost every ship that was left. Omar desperately shouted for every ship to attack the enemy, but it was far too late before he realized that there were no more ships to respond to his command. To save himself, the Admiral ordered his dreadnought to turn back and fired up the blink engine. But the aging sub-FTL thrusters were nowhere near the capabilities of what humanity had to offer. A single missile hit its mark on the dreadnought's nuclear engines. The explosion lit up the emptiness of space. The Incroins had never lost before. The Admiral of the German Space Force wondered how their Emperor must be feeling right now. But now is not the time to speculate. A war! has still yet to be won. End of story. Story number two. Pain tolerance written by nerdy white male. Blurb quivered in supplication before his emperor. I am sorry, your excellency. We have to cancel the invasion. Without quite realizing it, he curled his tentacles protectively around his sensory glands. So, when the roar of outrage didn't come, he was somewhat embarrassed. Not that he could turn a darker shade of green. This entire mess was embarrassing. The Emperor, a wreck, just looked at him and asked, Why? Blob hastily blurted out, The invasion force has been disabled. At this, Emperor Arrak lifted one of his tentacles and stopped the advancing guards. How many did they detect? And what is the casualty rate? This was not the first time a race had stopped them. The trick was finding out how to overcome the lesser being's mental defenses. Blurb slumped, lowering himself to the floor. We don't think they were detected. And, um, all of them. At this, a rack shot up off the royal guard dais, scattering cushions and royal attendants alike. There were 79,096 crack infiltrators in that force, veterans of countless invasions. Just how in the name of the still water did one planet that doesn't even have a space flight kill them all? He roared at the helpless Blurb. From his position on the ground, Blurb was patiently shielded from the outburst, so he managed to squeak out, 
They are not dead. Well, most of them aren't dead. They are catatonic or insane. A few did commit suicide. None of them will lower their mental shields, and when the caregivers force their way into their minds, Rub whimpered slightly as he had been supporting one of those teams. They went insane as well. Blurb and the Emperor Iraq were touring the medical center. The invasion started normally. We, we monitored their communications and determined key beings to take over. As far as we could tell, the race has no mental shielding. We can read them just fine, Blurb explained. But as soon as one of our soldiers merged with the humans, this happened. Blurb waved his tentacle at the twitching high infiltrator. The massive being had all his tentacles wrapped tightly around himself and was rocking back and forth at his pool. The few that can talk just make distressed keening sounds or scream the words it hurts over and over. But none of the forces were injured in the slightest, Blurb went on. IT manager Eggerson blinked as he came back to himself. Oh, uh, drifting off there. He stood up and popped his back idly, rubbing his wrists. Noticing the looks of worry his co-workers were giving him. Don't worry, just my carpal tunnel acting up again. I just need to go get some ibuprofen and my braces. His friends nodded. You had to be tough to work in IT. Deep in space, the screaming continued. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.